Yeah, Mark. Hey, Simon. How's your bad self was upping this week? And has it been was upping? Have you supped with the was for a while? I'm feeling a lot better. Is I think you're asking. I've had surgery since I last saw you. I know. How about that? Yeah. And the best thing is... I'm sure you're not going to give us it in great detail. I'll give it to you in some detail. I mean, firstly, because, I, you know, once again, the NHS were absolutely brilliant. And um, so I've got to... I had this... Cyst, the whole of the NHS. The whole of the NHS. Pardon me? They all operated on you. All of them. Yeah, it was all lined up. It was absolutely enormous. So I had this... Um, this uh, cyst taken off my uh, oh, my really? eyelid. Yes, oh. and, yeah, it's fine. And then I've got to have some other stuff done uh, next month. But um, at this, they had to do this thing first. And you know that I have a real uh, phobia about anything to do with eyeballs. I'm really kind of I'm very squeamish about anything to do with eyeballs. I remember seeing zombie flesh eaters at a young age, and it completely traumatising me. And I saw an Shan Andalou uh, at. In fact, what's that then? An Shan Andalou. Yeah, what's that? Uh, it's an experimental film. I mean, how, how can I describe this? Which has a very, very... Oh, I'll tell you, the best way of doing it as a pop reference for you, David Bowie um, used to play a sequence from Shannon Delou before he would come on stage during the Ziggy Stardust right. years, OK? So Why? Uh, because it was a because it was an experimental and confrontational uh, surrealist piece of work, mm-hmm. and there's a very famous sequence in it, in which what you see is um, what appears to be the slicing of a human eyeball, but what it actually is it's, it's to do with montage editing. You get a shot of the face, you get a shot of the eyeball, you get you see a cloud passing in front of the moon, then you see a razor severing an eyeball, which is obviously it's a you know it's a special effect eyeball. Anyway, the first time I saw it, I passed out. I literally passed out because I just have this whole wincy thing about, you know, about eyeballs. You are quite a wincy person. I am, yeah. And then there's all, you know, that bit in Terminator when, when you know, after he's broken his thing and he has to he sticks the he has to stick the screwdriver into his head to, to correct the thing, all that sort of stuff. Anything to do with eyeballs makes me wince. In fact, the good lady Professor Her Indoors once wrote a piece for Sight and Sound magazine specifically about violation of eyeballs in cinema, which I, with the research for that, I literally, I almost had to move out of the house. And um, at least you don't have to do pop references for her. No, that's right, because she's very similar to her. anyway. So anyway, so just before this thing happened, because they do it under local anaesthetic, and it was all brilliantly done, it was all fabulous. But as the uh, the surgeon came to with this, they do the thing about you know large injection because they've got to they've got to anaesthetize your eye. As the, as the the what you call it, the syringe came towards me, he said out loud, "You're not going to like this. You never want to hear that." I just ever. thought, I know I'm not going to like it. That's fine. Ow. They do the thing, but can you feel that? Yes, ow, but then it was fine. And then now it's all gone. Now it's brilliant. And apparently, uh, less than 24 hours later, you can, you can barely see anything, can you? No, I wouldn't even notice. But then you didn't even notice when it was there before, which slightly bothered me. Have you still got the cyst? No, they, want, they don't let you keep it. I've got all my cysts with me. Have you? Oh, I see. Sorry, it's that's uh, as in music cysts are doing so it for themselves, is it? It's a pop cultural okay. reference. Oh, brilliant. But then uh, I have to have this thing later on in which they're going to, they're going to fire laser beams into my eyes to cool. do something else. So that's all fine. And that's, So is that the latest medical bulletin? Anything else to report? No, that's it. Everything that, else is good. Yeah, yeah. But uh, thank you for being so concerned. Well, it's all right. That's why we started with me asking how you were. Yeah, well, you, since you asked, I told you. And As I, it turned I, out. I want to say again, thank you to the NHS for yeah, just being brilliant. That. No, I'm sorry, but it's important to say. Again. My mother and father both, you know, that's who they work for, and I'm very proud of them. So when you said, when I asked you about your bad self, it turns out... It was bad. There's quite now, a lot of the bad, you know, You've got quite a lot of bad cells. There's now right? less of my bad cells since, since, since a bit of the bad bit has been taken off. 
So that's a good positive start to the show. It is, yeah. Um, we've got a thing here from Jeremy Murray uh, who says, Dear Cherry Pink and Apple Blossom White. Which is which? I think I'm going to be Apple Blossom White. That makes no, me... I, don't, I could be Cherry Pink. I don't mind. No, no, you be Apple Blossom okay. White and I will be Cherry Pink. Like your email last week, Lucy, I too had heard your podcast at half speed uh, on occasions. I too had noticed that at half speed, Wittertainment sounded very much like the drunken ramblings of two sozzled friends. However, your, <laughs> your attempt at recreating That's the... what effect... it sounds like at full speed. Yeah, your attempt at recreating the effect of listening to the podcast at half speed merely slowed the audio, pitch and speed by half. The half-speed effect, on my device at least, attempts to preserve pitch while slowing the speed. This has the result of preserving more of the character of your voices while slowing the delivery. As hang if... on, hang on, hang on. So what, it's, it makes it slower but not lower? Something like that. As if intoxicated or heavily medicated. <laughs> A similar effect of slowing down the I was both of those audio, things yesterday. But retaining pitch is sometimes used in audio recordings can be heard in things like the Rockefeller Skank uh, by Fatboy Slim, 1998. I have enclosed a recording of the start of your January the 27th show, the Lager, Lager, Lager introduction, okay. at half speed right. to demonstrate the effect that I, I imagine Lucy had heard. Okay. Exactly the point that is proved so brilliantly, Jeremy, by, by that clip. That is exactly so. The speed is slow, but the pitch is the pitch is the same. That was definitely a Jeez. drunk, drunk conversation. Uh, Jeremy says, "I have also enclosed a half-speed version of you both at the start of the February the third show, talking about the sound of the half-speed version <laughs> of the previous week." That would be a party you want to leave. <laughs> <laughs> Straight away. <laughs> Why well, was Lucy listening to it at the wrong speed? I don't know. I don't <laughs> understand know. those devices. I didn't know you even could do that. <laughs> I didn't know you even could do that. Really? I might be living with teenagers. <laughs> Now, how do you do that? I'm going to have to listen to our podcast on a regular basis now, and at that kind of speed. So, sorry, if you if you listen to a podcast at half speed, does it do does it do that that's keeping the does. pitch the I think same? That's the idea that the pitch is the same, but it just slows <laughs> us down. It's unbelievable. It sounds exactly like Derek and Clive. Jeremy is one of many. In fact, pretty much everybody who signs off his email. With the TTOF, which is the which is the new favourite, 
while we're on the subject of special recordings... Uh, OK, that sounds ominous. Philip Schwa has sent us an email. Uh, listening to the first 20 seconds of the Danny Boyle episode... Oh, Danny Boyle. At half speed is fun, but check it out uh, uh, at the right speed, mixed with a little bit of Underworld's Born Slippy and Mark's Criminal and Fred the Movie reviews. I've enclosed the MP3. Love from Hamburg, Tinkety Tonk, and Down with the Nazis and so on. <laughs> it says, all master rights are yours. Well, the thing is, thanks, Philip, and we appreciate your work. We don't own the Underworld bit, so that's why you might... I thought you did. No, well, we had a word with Danny. Said that. I thought, they were, thought Underworld was you. Anyway, so let's just admire as much as we can of... Philip Schwa's version of all that stuff. Shannon! Lager, 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 lager. Shannon! Lager, 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 lager. White thing, mega, mega, white thing, mega move. Shannon! Lager, 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 lager. Shannon! Lager, lager, <laughs> lager, lager. White thing, mega, mega, white thing, mega move. Danny Boyle. Danny Boyle. Danny Boyle. <laughs> Oi, you girls, shut it. <laughs> Is that it? <laughs> I'm more Winston than Winston. <laughs> anyway, Philip, but, thank you. That's a work of genius. <coughs> Unfortunately, on the podcast, you've only heard a few seconds of it because that's all we're allowed to play. Oh, really? Yeah, we've just heard the whole thing. And if you listen to the whole show live, you'll have heard the whole thing. Are we going to do the whole thing in the podcast, in the live thing? Yes, okay. the whole thing will be in the... In the live thing. In the live thing. Mega, mega, live thing, mega, mega. But obviously in the live thing, as on this podcast, it'll still be the same edited version. Okay. Which will cause a lot of frustration, but them's the rules. Is it? Since when? Apparently it just is. Okay. I'm sorry about that. So how do you like them apples? Which A phrase I've never understood. Uh, right. But Let's apparently you're not interested, so... No, well, I'm just aware of trying to get in as much listener-related entertainment. <laughs> and Because that's what it is, apparently. All right. Uh, David Green has sent us an email. Hello. <clears throat> Whilst listening to last Friday's podcast, I heard Mark question what bird was singing on the bird song, which in recent times has, has been used a, enormously. A regular contributor to your programme. Well, having spent many hours listening to bird song both on tape and out in the field to identify species for surveys... I felt eminently qualified to comment. So this is what we play when Mark says things that are politically unacceptable. Or you. I don't do that kind of thing. The beautiful song of the robin takes centre stage with some great backing vocals from a blackbird, the percussive cawing of some rooks and the upbeat chirping of a house sparrow. Let's enjoy. That's really lovely, and we're and we're hearing that just for its own, not to cover up some, not to cover up some Trotskyist rantings of a mad lefty in the corner. Okay, that's just beautiful birdsong. I would just like to point out the last week that we that we that that was used because of something you said, not because of something I said. Was it? Yes, it was. What did I say? We started off on a whole thing, and then you said, "Would it be better if I just oh, said?" If and just all said of that, that had person? to come out. That's true. And 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 now Robin's giving me the evil eye. It, could, could I just confirm that it was Simon last week? It wasn't. Anyway. Oh, it was, apparently it was both of us. We were egging each other on. Dave Green says, rather than ask for cash for revealing these species, please could I ask you, you and the congregation of the church for help in identifying a film or TV movie okay. whose identity has eluded elude me for 15 years. 
All I can remember is that it had the character of a sharp-suited assassin who carried a black briefcase and did assassiny type things, <laughs> possibly at one point from an empty building, uh, building site a few stories up, and I was pretty certain at the time that it had a lady from the cast of EastEnders in it. Although I've never watched EastEnders, I may be entirely wrong. And any divine inspiration as to the title would be much appreciated. Well, we'll put it out there. And this, okay, so an assassin with a black briefcase, although that doesn't cut things down very much. No, he's in a building I mean, site and he does an assassiny thing from men, many stories up. Well, I mean, again, that doesn't really narrow it not down. Really. It's it's the person from EastEnders. Who might not have been in it. Who might not have been in the film or might not have been in EastEnders. Might Enders. not have been in EastEnders or in the film. So, but that would that would seem to imply that it's a British film. A British film about an assassiny type person with a briefcase on a building site with someone from EastEnders. And Colonel Mustard. <laughs> Who knows? Okay. I look forward to seeing you uh, steaming up the Arran River in Sussex on the next cruise. And please, could I request a pickup near Wisborough Green for myself, the good lady ecologist here indoors, and our feline overlord, Badger Bob? Tinkity tonk old fruit and down with it. And then it's a redacted bit. <laughs> Dave Green, previous holder of the Natural England Schedule 1, licensed to bother and irritate Stone Curlew, one of England's rarest but greatest looking birds. Okay. I don't think Robin heard any of that, so that's, that, that might will be all thrilling. be absolutely fine. Apparently, there will be adjustments. But <laughs> there, will be, there will be adjustments. <laughs> we have to make adjustments. Why am I doing that? Excuse me. You, that, you, are you going to leave that in? Okay, uh, unbelievable that that would get left in. Which is sort of pampering to... Um, pandering, not pampering. Well, no, I'm pampering. You, didn't know, you don't know what the sentence is. I, I know exactly where that you sentence is going no to. You have no idea. Okay. I think I might squeeze in... <laughs> A quick one from David Stewart, it, but not that one. In light of the recent <laughs> tale of a student teacher church member outing, I thought I should write and inform you of my own recent encounter. At the end of a lesson earlier this week, a student approached me and said, my dad says hello to Jason Isaacs. Okay. I grinned broadly and said, I take it your dad is a church member? The student looked confused and said, no, he never goes to church ever. We had a short and baffling conversation in which it became clear that the student had no idea why his father asked him to pass this particular message to this particular teacher and he clearly thought that we were both out of our minds. Although being a teenager, he always assumes that his teacher and his parents were mad. This just provided with confirmation. So what do you think has happened, Mark? I don't know. I have no idea. I spent the rest of the week wondering how on earth a parent who I had never managed to who I'd never met, managed to out me as a member of your church. It was only much later that I recalled a lesson in which I was discussing the difference between written and verbal English and the fact that English has a clarity when written down that it sometimes lacks when spoken. Okay. okay. In a moment of inspiration, I related how I had heard of someone who always thought the expression, as the crow flies, involved a lying crow. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Clearly, the student had related this story to his family and dad and had concluded that there could only be one person in the world who worried about lying crofts, yep. which led him to believe that I was a regular listener. Very good. I was wondering if any of your other listeners had been outed as church members by an intermediary. Has any other listener made contact with a fellow Wittetani through a third party who didn't have a clue what was going on? Which is quite a lot of people. <laughs> anyway, hello to Jason. Hello to the non-church-going church member from Melbourne, Australia, who correctly guessed what their son's teacher listens to on the weekend. Thank you. So yeah, so it's the it's not about lying crows. No, that's what we established. But yeah. there are. But you're probably the only one who thought that. No, I think somebody else did email in to say that they had similarly. Didn't it? Was it? What, am I alone in it? Wasn't there somebody else out there anywhere? My goodness! Look at the time. On with the show. Hello. Good afternoon. Welcome to the program. I never knew there was a love season. 
Are we part of it? I don't know whether we haven't been. We haven't received a memo about our contribution to the love season. Are we not adding to the love? We could just take it upon ourselves to sort of kick the love season off slightly earlier than normal. Okay, in a, in a Barry White style. No, I think Mark we got Rag- together, I think, didn't we? I think Mark Radcliffe killed that off <laughs> quite a few years ago. God, I'd forgotten that. And of course, that was something that was done by using a tonal machine that changed the, that you know made his voice go lower. That's right. Which brilliantly. Uh, well, on the on on the on, pod, on the podcast over the last few weeks, uh, people have been talking about what we sound like when we're slowed down. Yes. And the difference between slowing the speed down and slowing the pitch down, and that's all part of the podcast, which will be available later on. However. Philip Schwa, who's already had a mention on the podcast, this is his proper genuine launch into the world, who's yes. in Hamburg, says, ladies, listening to the first 20 seconds of your Danny Boyle episode oh, Danny Boyle. at half speed is fun, but check it out at the right speed, mixed with a little bit of Underworld's Born Slippy and also Mark's Criminal Review and Fred the Movie Review, OK? okay. So when you put them all together, <laughs> I mean, it's... There's a lot of work that's gone into this, Philip Schwa, so we appreciate your work from Hamburg. A worrying amount of work. Yeah, anyway, so full credit to you for this. Shannon! Lager, 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 lager. Shannon! Lager, 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 lager. White thing, mega, mega, white thing, mega move. Shannon! Lager, 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 lager. Shannon! Lager, 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 lager. White thing, mega, mega, white thing, mega move. Danny Boyle, Danny Boyle, Danny Boyle, Danny Boyle, Danny Boyle. Oi, you girls, shut it. <laughs> so, Philip, thank you very much for all that work that went into that. I can imagine a number of people in conversations in cars. Can you? This is a racket. Can you turn that down. What, what's Steve Wright? Can we go? Can Steve Wright? <laughs> Uh, if that's not toppermost of the poppermost by next week's charts, I'll be very disappointed. Anyway, Philip, thank you very much indeed for all your hard work, uh, and you're very welcome to the programme. On the uh, news from the underground... Uh-huh. Um, from the underground? Yes, Nick Dastur from Finsbury Park, the smart end of North You know what, Finsbury Park is backwards. Yes, I've just checked it out. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, dear S&M Valentine special, see, the love season has started. It has. Uh, do your tube driver correspondents have a friend who works the Piccadilly line? This is because we have, we've yes. had some correspondence about uh, one particular driver <laughs> who spots, yes. uh, I think it was on the Bakerloo line. Mike Lee. Who spotted Mike Lee and then said hello to him and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, <laughs> last Friday afternoon, shortly after your show was aired, I was travelling northbound to Finsbury Park. The train was sitting at a station, it might have been Holloway Road, when the familiar tones of a driver announcement began. Hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, here we go, I thought. Is the train going to be held here to regulate the service? Is there a signalling failure? The driver continued, If you have any time to spare this this weekend, my ears pricked up, is this going to be an appeal to support an event in aid of the Tube Drivers Benevolent Fund? He continued, If you have any spare time, I'd really recommend you go and see Hacksaw Ridge. (laughs) I saw it yesterday. Definitely worth the trip to the cinema. Hacksaw Ridge, excellent film. Says the guy on the tube. (laughs) That'll be on the poster next week. Titters around the carriage, and then the train carried on its way, leaving aside the unpalatable possibility that the studio had paid the driver for a slice of fake word of mouth publicity. <laughs> this brightened up my Friday, also had the desired effect. I went to see Hacksaw Ridge the next day. The cinema was packed, but it was also quite dark, so I can't say for certain if they were the same people who'd been riding the Piccadilly line uh, the day before. Anyway, thanks, driver. I enjoyed the film a lot, despite the dubious political credentials of the director. <laughs> My question is, have other listeners received movie-going recommendations 
recommendations in a public transport announcement or through the hijacking of any other official channel. Where does Transport for London stand on all this? Accidentally, actually, let's not look too deeply into that. I don't want to get him into trouble. Well, I think that's quite a nice announcement. Yeah. As long as he's just saying, I went to see this. I liked it. it. You might like it too. Yeah. Yeah. Why, why don't you go and see? Yeah, I would have my review would have been slightly different, but uh, but that's absolutely fine. And you're not a cheap driver. I'm not a cheap driver, absolutely. Yeah, well, Nick, thank you very much indeed. Eight five zero five eight mail at bbc.co.uk if you want to get involved. Just before the top, uh, the box office top eleven. Yes. Which we're going to do. Denzel Washington, our guest after two thirty. Yes. Uh, Aliek. Uh, Aliek Loginov says, uh, Dear M&S or S&M, depending on your preference, and whether the latter coincides with the timing of the release of the new E.L. James adaptation, <laughs> which amazingly it does. Yes. I'm going to spare you the pain of reading out the all-too-familiar Witter clichés and get straight to the point. The reason I'm breaking my usual norm of being a passive Witter trainee is because I wanted to address Simon's your mum joke from the last show. Before yeah. you speculate, I'm not 13, I'm 30. To answer Mark's question, yes, people do still say that and have done it for quite some time. In fact, a quick Google search will reveal that the first version of this joke dates back to ancient Babylon, 1,500 years BCE. <laughs> not that I have anything against anyone's mother, but these sort of jokes were openly used as a form of bonding between colleagues, predominantly male, at my previous place of work. Anyway, based on this recent mention, I hope I correctly assume that you both enjoyed juvenile humour and would indulge me by passing on a message from me to my former colleague VJ Sodi. In the interest of gender balance, a simple your dad will suffice. Much appreciated. I'm not quite sure I followed all of that, but anyway. <laughs> it was but very it was very thorough, wasn't it? But it's never your dad, is it? It's always No, it's always your mum. It's always your mum. But anyway, we've just taken part. Aliak, thank you very much. Box office top eleven, mm-hmm. and we're doing that because loving is at number eleven, which, which I really liked. I thought it was, loved. you know, it, it, what's very interesting about it is that the possibilities of grandstanding in that story are, are huge. And in fact, what happens with, is that Jeff Nichols decides to underplay everything. Uh, terrific sense performance by uh, Ruth Nager, who is just really brilliant, and it's an understated film about understated people, ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances. And I think very brave to have. To, to have you know to have kept it as low key as it is to have not gone for in for any of the kind of cliched courtroom stuff the you can't handle the truth sort of stuff but to have played everything very much like the protagonists i liked it a lot i mean i you know i, I I'm, I'm i'm glad it's number 11 i wish it were higher malcolm sanders says am i missing something mark's contention was that the film's principal appeal was its refusal to dial the emotion up to 11 mm-hmm. which of course is hollywood stock in trade but with loving while i watch with my wife and two other middle-aged friends the consensus was that things had moved too far in the opposite direction. The impassivity of the couple, both in respect of their plight and even in respect of each other, just left us detached. Although presumably something was stirring behind closed doors as several new kids kept on appearing every time we cut to a different scene. By two-thirds of the way through, I had grown tired of Joel Edgerton's inscrutable thousand-yard stare and was beginning to feel that if the protagonists came across as dispassionate bystanders in their own lives unable even to work up an ounce of outrage uh, about their treatment, why should I get emotionally involved either? Well, I did find it emotionally involving. I have heard that uh, criticism elsewhere, and I mean, I, I think that's why I think it's a brave thing to do, because the fact is that if you take that course, you are going to lose some of the audience who, you know, who, who expect something different from it. I liked the fact that it underplayed it, but I also liked the fact that it felt like a risk. Uh 
John Whitbread is more with you. Uh, in a time when nearly every news bulletin seems filled with derision, division, malice, bitterness and violence, we are in crying need of a heartwarming antidote. Thank goodness then for Jeff Nichols' beautifully understated loving, which, like its British counterpart, a United Kingdom, shows how even a small love can overcome huge and institutionally implacable hate and bigotry. Nichols has chosen very cleverly to eschew the usual civil rights set pieces of massed marches and soaring oratory. Instead, he takes us on another journey and he's setting the ordinary lives of two would-be very private people, Richard and Mildred, loving against the machinations of the state. Ruth Neger has quite rightly been Oscar-nominated for her telling portrayal of Mildred, but it disappoints that Joel Edgerton, who gives an equally powerful portrayal of Richard, mm. and indeed the film itself, have not been similarly recognised. I have a feeling, however, that the quiet and subtle messages of loving will reverberate far wider and for longer than the instant glitz and glamour of Hollywood's annual Big Bash. I tend to agree with you. Um, incidentally, I've had a couple of people say, why is it that United Kingdom uh, didn't get nominated for any Oscars? It's because it didn't get released in time. Uh, it was held back. It's only just opening in America now. Um, so it wasn't eligible for the Oscars uh, for, for whatever reason. I don't know why that particularly. I mean, I, I think it's a, an omission because I thought it was a great film. I would love to have seen David Yellowo uh, up for Best Actor because I thought he's. You saw United Kingdom, yeah. Right? But I mean, so yeah. maybe, maybe its time will still come with the next batch. But it doesn't happen like that. If, if something gets released in February, it doesn't tend to get nominated next year round. But I think it's a really a really good film, and it's a very interesting comparison to make with Loving, and uh, they make a very good double bill. Uh, so Loving is at 11, Jackie is at 10. Worth it for the soundtrack alone by Mika Levy, who does such extraordinary work. Uh, very, very um, uh, complicated performance by Natalie Portman, uh, who plays somebody who is playing a role, playing a role. Um, I think that Pablo Lorraine does a, a very interesting job of getting under the skin of that story, but I it took me two runs to get my head around it. Gold is at nine. Didn't like it. I thought that, um, and you know, Matthew McConaughey came on the show. He was talking about Gold. He was also talking about Sing. And I know which of those two films I prefer. Gold just felt like, well, as I said, the phrase that my daughter used, which was absolutely right, which is that it's a, a sheep in Wolf of Wall Street's clothing. Resident Evil 6 is at number eight. I, which I enjoyed more than I thought I was going to. Um, it's the final chapter, although we wait to see uh, whether it actually is the final chapter. It's kind of, you know, kinetic and uh, rockets along in the manner of uh, a computer game. I mean, I expected to be completely uh, un unmoved by it, but I kind of enjoyed it. And it was interesting because I saw it, as I said, with, with, with Kim Newman and Alan Jones, who are journalists I respect enormously. And as we came out, we all looked at each other and went, you know, that was fine, wasn't it? It was absolutely fine. I also, I think it's I think it's one of the films of the month in Sight and Sound magazine, which is an interesting choice. So. On the other hand, Stephen Gray says, Resident Evil, final chapter, just when you think they can't make a film as bad as the last one, they surpass your worst fear okay. by doing just that. Okay. And that is the scariest thing about the film. People turn up, shout a bit, then thankfully stop shouting by not being <laughs> in the film anymore. This should have gone straight to video where it belongs. Becky Parmenter, Resident Evil 7, the recently released Six. game. Oh, seven. Sorry, I beg your pardon. Yes, in front. Uh -huh is an atmospheric, tense, dread-laden horror experience where you're nervous about turning every corner and opening every slow, creaky door. Resident Evil, the final chapter... Is none of the above. ...is a loud mess of terrible lines, headache-inducing editing and a nonsensical plot. If you want a uh, scary Resident Evil experience either by the latest game or watch a Let's Play on YouTube, if you do that, though, you may well want to have a cushion handy to hide behind. So. Okay, I mean, I should point out, as I've said a million times before, I'm, I don't play uh, video games, so I'm not, 
I'm not somebody who can who can talk about it from a, the point of view of a player because I'm I just don't do it. Not because I have any problem with them. I absolutely don't. I'm just too old to start. Yes, well, but it's interesting that you know it seems to be that maybe the game is scarier than the film. I'm sure that that may well be the case. So uh, that's at number eight. Rings is at seven. Good lord. So I went to see Rings. Um, there wasn't a press show, and I there wasn't I wasn't able to see it before last week's show because the first screening was was too late. So I went to see it over the weekend, and it was utterly terrible. And I speak as somebody who, you know, when the when Ringu first came out, and I loved it, and I remember seeing it at the Edinburgh Film Festival. I remember doing a piece about it for Film Four. I introduced it on Film Four. I gave away one of the biggest scares in the movie, which is I learned a very important lesson, which was don't introduce a movie by telling people they're going to really love this scene when this thing happens. And how depressing that after all this time, we now have rings. I mean, there were, you know, there was Ringu and Ringu 2 and Ring Zero and then the remakes and then the American, all of which look just unbelievably inventive in comparison with the boring, dreary, you know, absolutely couldn't care less thrown togetherness of rings. And I saw it in a screening on the Saturday night and uh, I went with uh, my teenage son who was bored out of his skull and then three other teenagers came and sat in front of us and I thought, oh, they're gonna, they'll are gonna they misbehave. And they didn't. They behaved really well, largely, I think, because one of them was falling asleep. There was no jumps, no shrieks, no nothing, no engagement. And everybody plodding out of the cinema seemed to have the, the same feeling. It was absolutely terrible. Here's Ross Miller. I went to see Rings in the hope that after the frankly terrible Ring 2 that we get something that updated the series to feel modern whilst retaining the scares and atmosphere of the original and the rather excellent remake. Alas, my hopes were dashed. What a dull, unscary, bland Mm -hmm. mess of a film. After not one but two opening sequences, just pick one, it takes a mildly interesting way to bring things up to date. Passing on the virus via the way everyone can see. Mm -hmm. How do you make a decent horror movie? You just make a decent horror movie. Unfortunately, the filmmakers didn't heed that advice. Daniel Cullinane. Uh, Rings is appalling. I almost fell asleep halfway through. At yeah, least... exactly. I mean, I genuinely did drift off at one point. At least the Bye Bye Men was somewhat intriguing in its awfulness. This was just a boring, unnecessary sequel that felt completely outdated. Uh, I couldn't actually believe what I was watching. Score one out of five, and that's being yeah. generous. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. It's rubbish. It's really, and it's insulting rubbish at that. As recommended by... Uh, Staff on the Piccadilly line in London, Hacksaw Ridge at number six. I, you know, I can't quite get on board the, uh, you know, the, the, the train of appreciation for this. Train film. of appreciation, good. Oh, thank you. No, that, sorry, that was complete. That wasn't even instinctive. intentional. Instinctive, yes, aeroplane station. I think that the first half of it is like a Nick Sparks movie, although I quite like Nick Sparks movie. In the second half, there are there is some great visceral filmmaking in there because this is absolutely Mel Gibson's register, but I also think that it loses control of itself and does drift into Tropic Thunder territory. So I I can't quite get on board. I mean, it's... It is so much less of a film than Apocalypto. And the further away I get from having seen it, the less impact it has on me. It is not a film which has stayed with me. Uh, Lion is at number five. Which I loved. And I've seen it a couple of times. And I was really impressed by how they managed to make that story work so well. I thought Nicole Kidman's performance was terrific. Dev Patel is is wonderful. Astonishing that this is a true story. It manages to be really, really engaging and really moving. And it, you know, when I first saw it, I wondered whether... Because, you know, obviously the first sequence, the bit at the beginning when the little kid gets on the train is 
absolutely terrifying and heartbreaking. And I was wondering whether it's a kind of, you know, whether it's a parental reaction, but I think it's a universal reaction. I think anybody, because it has that Spielbergian thing, the tiny child, the huge, you know, the, the station, which is so big, everything around him seems to be sort of monstrous and out of place. And I thought it was really, really moving and very powerful. Splits at number four. The M. Night Shyamalan sort of career resurrection continues apace. There is fun to be had here. I think James McAvoy has a lot of fun with the split personality roles. The film itself is fairly hackneyed and works with a bunch of B-movie ideas that we've seen done better elsewhere. And I think that the writing is pretty subpar. That said, if you just saw it as a B-movie with no great expectations, no kind of great baggage from Shyamalan's career... You, you might enjoy it in a sort of throwaway popcorn kind of way. La La Land is at number three. Loved it. And I can't understand the whole La La Land backlash thing. I mean, the problem with it is a load of people saw La La Land. A load of people loved La La Land. They said how much they loved La La Land. And then after that, it became the thing you had to do was to find something wrong with La La Land. You know what? It's a great film. It's a really good film. Damien Chazelle does a really interesting job with it. And... I people say it's not singing in the rain. It's like going, it's not Casablanca. You know what? Nothing is singing in the rain or Casablanca except for singing in the rain and Casablanca. And incidentally, yes, yeah, what? Incidentally, I remember watching um, Hail Caesar, which again I loved, and I know a lot of people didn't. But that the whole with the twist are simple is quite clearly taken from, and I can't stand him from singing in the rain. Hail Caesar isn't singing in the rain. Still love it. So I seem to remember that Mr. Giselle is 31. He's 12 years old. It's ridiculous. Well, it's Barry Jenkins is on the show yeah. next week. So he's so Moonlight has got eight Oscar nominations. And it's wonderful. Um, so we'll, and we'll talk about that next week. But mm. you'd think that... And he's, I think he's the same age. As the, the really scary thing is that I think their combined age is probably less than our age. One of us. <clears throat> no, fortunately, I think we're well, only get, we're, we're just under the that. wire. We're just under the wire. Uh, La La Land's number three. Train spotting uh, T two is at conveniently number two. Here's Emma in five. As I have now been to see T two train spotting four times in two weeks. Wow! You can probably guess what the tone of this email will be. I think that most of Scotland feels the same way. As at each visit, the cinema has been packed, no matter if it was Tuesday morning or Saturday night. Uh, I was five when Trainspotting made its first arrival in cinemas. However, although I'm not quite the age of the characters as we return to them in T2, I was still swept away again in the joyful antics as well as the bitter regrets still hitting home for me. Even the visuals, such as the Nosferatu-esque shadows, left me awed. Uh, what compelled me to write in for the first time was the outstanding performance by the cast, in particular Ewan Bremner. Uh, the way his face transforms from hilarious befuddlement to ardent angst <laughs> makes me believe that Spud's story would still raise the same emotions in me if I watched it without any sound at all. I'm just happy not only that Spud's story gets to shine as it deserves, but that Bremner was the force behind it. It was said that the sadness in La La Land made its joyous moments even more joyful. Yeah. In T2, we are lulled into a sense of security. They were on a jaunt with these characters again, making the crash back to earth with reality that they live in even more heartbreaking and none hits harder than Spud's arc. TTOF and down with uh, everyone else. <laughs> I mean, I really liked it, and I, I completely agree about Spud's character. It was the the film in which he really finds his voice, and and it is amazing talking to people of our age who've gone to see T two Train Spotting and have all that baggage 
and have been really, really touched by it. The thing that I'm still uncertain about is how that how it plays for a much younger audience who didn't grow up with it. Uh, Train spotting is at two, uh, T two at two, and number one is Sing, uh, which is the uh, and the when you did the Matthew McConaughey interview, you talked to him about Sing and you talked to him about Gold, and I said I know which of the two films I. Like. I mean, Sing is really charming. Funnily enough, I was with Neil Brand this morning, and remind us about Neil. so Neil Brand, uh, Sound of Cinema, a uh, brilliant uh, film composer and pianist. People will know him from presenting uh, programs about film music on the BBC, which he does brilliantly he's one of the very few people who can present and play the piano at the same time which is a real talent and he was saying how much he'd enjoyed sing and what he loved about it was that it was an it was an old-fashioned musical and i was really touched by that because because it's you know it's a it's a digital animation and you know one of the things obviously it's something that's referring back to the old warner brothers movies and it's a kind of judy garland uh mickey rooney you know let's do the show here kind of film it's a muppets it's a muppets episode yeah, you said that, and I think you're right. But in that way, that Muppets episodes are th- are absolutely throwbacks to those old school, you know, let's put the show on here kind of movies, and that's that is the feeling. It was lovely hearing it from Neil because I mean nobody knows the musical better than Neil, and for Neil to say that about it, I thought was a ringing endorsement. And uh, Mr. McCollum uh, has been on uh, along with all the primary six boys and girls in Meadowbridge, PS, which is primary school. Dear good doctors, I'm not an 11-year-old with an extraordinary flair for writing, nor am I a new parent with a cunning plan for a cinema trip. I am (laughs) simply a weary teacher, currently on an outdoor residential for a a week with my primary six class. Amidst canoeing, wall climbing, dorm inspections and the like, the chance to see Sing at the fantastic Eclipse Cinema in Downpatrick at the halfway point in our week was a welcome relief. The children came out with rave reviews about the film with some wildebeest-related flatulent humour being amongst the highlights. It's funny. Is that in the BBFC thing? Contains wildebeest flatulence? Probably should be. Personally, I found the film did have flaws, specifically a conversation I imagine happened during production. How can we make another Zootropolis? I know we'll add so much music and singing that the audience will forget we've seen a world of animated animals not 12 months ago. Anyway... Maybe that rant is just linked to the sleep deprivation, but I could thoroughly recommend Sing to a bunch of nine and ten-year-olds looking to have a fun cinematic experience. Big hello to Jason, but we're not at the indoctrination stage of chanting that at the assembly uh, because we had uh, a clip from someone's assembly where they were all did. Can I just say on that subject of distancing from Zootropolis or Zootopia, as it's known in America, the thing about animations is they take years to make. And as far as I understand, in the case of Sing... It began life as The Lunch Project, you know, because uh, I was talking to Garth Jennings about this. It was four years ago. So I'm not... I think it's off, those things are often more coincidental than one may think uh, because production time, particularly on this kind of animation, is such a long haul. Uh, so uh, coming up in the next half hour, I'm going to be speaking to Denzel Washington about Fences, Oscar nominated all over the place. What else are we going to be doing? Well, we will also be reviewing Fences and then after that, Lego Batman, Billy Lynn's long halftime walk, Prevenge, all this to come. Uh, you can email mayo at bbc.co.uk. Now it's 230 Actually, it started right here. It started yes. a few minutes ago. The love session. I don't think it sounds a little bit creepy when you... <laughs> Why is it that when I say love, it sounds creepy? I don't know. We just made me think as though it was a little bit weird. Just just saying. That's all. But there's, there's, there's the thing. There was there was an interview once with, um, with Al, Al Pacino, and he was being asked why it was that he didn't do more comedies. And 
And he said, because the problem is that when Dustin Hoffman smiles, because there was always this thing early on that they were meant to look like each other. He said, when Dustin Hoffman smiles, you want to hug him. When I smile, you want to run away. And no, I think I wouldn't that, say it's anything like that at all. You don't think I'm like Al Pacino? Not in a bad way. Okay. Anyway, um, so amongst the big movies that we... <laughs> I'm sorry? It's me doing Al Pacino. <laughs> there were other things that you could have chosen. What? I'm just thinking. Uh, and I shall come up with them in just a second. Okay. Uh, should we talk fences? Let's talk fences. Uh, Denzel Washington is our special guest. You'll hear from him uh, in just a moment. A clip from Fences, first of all, featuring Denzel as Troy Maxson and Jovan Adepo as his son, Corey. How come you ain't never like me? Like you? Who the hell said I got to like you? What law is there say I got to like you? Want to stand up in front of my face and ask a damn fool-ass question like that? Talking about liking somebody. Come here, boy, when I talk to you. Straighten up, damn it. I asked you a question. What law is there say I got to like you? None. All right, then. Don't you eat every day? Answer me when I talk to you. Don't you eat every day? Yeah. As long as you're in my house, you put a sir on the end of it when you talk to me. Yes, sir. You eat every day. Yes, sir. Got a roof over your head. Yes, sir. Got clothes on your back. Yes, sir. Why you think that is? Because of you. <laughs> Hell, I know it's because of me. But why do you think that is? And that's a clip from Fences. Its star and director is Denzel Washington. Denzel, how are you, sir? I'm very good. How are you? Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Welcome to the and welcome to the program. You must be feeling uh, pretty chipper. Why? I don't know. I can't. <laughs> let me let me just check the list. Oh yes, Oscar nominations. Oh yeah. Maybe. Oh yeah. 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 No, I, I thought you meant just like in life. Yeah. But oh, and okay. I and I, yeah. Before, I, but before we get that in life. Yeah, I feel good. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I feel good. And and I'm happy for for August Wilson that uh, his work is being recognized. And he wrote he wrote the play. Yeah, and, he wrote and the and play, his... screenplay, and we've had critical and now uh, box office success in the states and. Uh, Hopefully that'll that'll continue around the world. Just fill us in just a bit about the play because this is an '80s play, though it's set in the '50s mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. uh, and has been shown many times. And I went to see it in uh, with Lenny Henry. You saw Lenny, saw Lenny Henry yeah. in 2013, which right. was a terrific performance. So every time it gets shown, it has an extraordinary impact. Just fill us in a little bit on the history of the play. August Wilson is is, in my opinion, one of the great playwrights in American history. Uh, as you said, it was first performed, or I first saw it in the mid '80s with James Earl Jones and Courtney Vance, uh, and Mary Alice had won multiple awards. We did the first revival on Broadway, we being Viola Davis, Stephen Henderson, and, and the other cast and myself. In 2010, we were nominated for multiple awards, uh, won Tony's, uh, Viola, myself, the play. It won the Pulitzer Prize. So it's that level of material. What was it about this play set in the 50s in Pittsburgh that had such an impact on the audience it's about everyday people warts and all you know it's unapologetic and honest troy is the character i play is brutally honest but it's all about this family dynamic and uh like i said it's specifically an african-american family but the themes are universal you know we we had a screening and a, a guy said i i didn't know august wilson was polish because he said that was my dad up there you know, and people will see their father, maybe, or there's a son. Is there some suggestion that it's a little bit of August's father? I wouldn't dare say, you know, he's no longer with us. I've I've, I've read things that he's written where he said it wasn't specifically. But I don't know what, what his process was. It might have been people he talked to or people he knew. There are elements of it that are like my father. My father was a gentle man but not highly educated, suggested that I couldn't really read that great. 
you know, was from that old school, work hard, you know, get a trade one day. My mother was like Rose, said, no, he needs to go to college. And so those those things, I think, are there's a bit of that in, in, in a lot of our lives. Yeah, you said Troy is an honest man. But Brutally he's, honest. Yeah, and a liar. No, he's not a liar. Well, he's a storyteller. When I interviewed Lenny uh, uh-huh. about it, it's, it's a quote from him. He said, he's a liar and he's a storyteller. I'm not going to say what Lenny was talking about, but his son says in the play, he used to hit the ball out of the park. He was a great baseball player. It wasn't enough for him just to hit it in the stands. He had to hit it over. Uh, he had to do better than everybody. Now, I, I think he was a great baseball player, and I think that he didn't make it. So in that sense, he's not a liar. He says to Bono, who's, who's his best his friend, best friend yeah. talking about the woman, Alberta. He says, you know, I wasn't out, you know me, I wasn't out there looking for nothing, you know. And I think he's telling the truth. I'd be curious to talk to Lenny about that. For example, I remember the cinematographer when we first sat out. She says, well, you know, he's an angry man. I said, no, he's not. He's not an angry man. That's not all it is. See, the great thing about great playwrights, Eugene O'Neill, Tennessee Williams, Arthur Miller, Edward Albee, August Wilson, is that they're, it's not all one thing. The roles and the stories are deep and wide and open to interpretation. People ask me, what do you want people to get from the film? I say, it depends upon what they bring to it. You know, you can, you can see him as a liar. You can see him as this. You can see him as that. Depends upon what's going on in your own life. When you, um, when you played it on stage, this is just, this is just one other line from the, the conversation I had with Lenny. He said when he played it on stage, there was always a moment where he could sense there are certain revelations that we learn about Troy as we go through as we go through the story, and that he could sense some people in the audience going, "Hmm," as in, "I've got you now. You're like going to you're going to hear some truth now." So when we hear some revelations, I don't want to give too much of the story away. Right, 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 right. I just when when you were playing it on stage, did you hear any feedback from the audience as they learned, oh, yeah. as they learned more stuff about the kind of oh man no he questions. Was? Yes, no question. I, I, you heard sounds and grunts, and but I didn't stand around trying to interpret them. I mean, we we moved on. We, in fact, we had to learn early on to keep pushing with the play, or the audience would wrestle it from you, because there was such laughter initially and, and visceral responses that uh, you had to keep pushing. I don't know how it played here in England, but in America, it's an interesting social, I guess you'd say, experiment, just listening to the responses of people. Like in the film, when we first see the little girl, to hear, I, I remember sitting in the audience with, in the screening, because you don't know, again, I'm trying not to give it all away, you don't know who Alberta is until you see that little girl. And you could hear women especially, hmm. like, you know. And it's across the board in this big scene when Viola really goes off on Rose really goes off on Troy. I've heard and seen women black, white, yellow, just mm-hmm, that's right, that's right, honey. And sometimes we had a screen and it started getting up and talking back to the to the screen. So it's amazing to me and a testament to August Wilson and Viola's great performance that this was a, one of the great speeches, if you will, for a woman written by a man. It's quite Shakespearean at times. It is. Isn't it? It's, it's actually called American Shakespeare now. Yeah. And I think your role, you have more lines than Othello and almost as many lines as King Lear. Is that right? Yeah. yeah have he, you ever had as many lines? I don't know. I, I never but it's counted. Like a, but you're, it's like a whirlwind. As soon as, you're on, as soon as we see you on screen. Could it, not have done the film without having done the play. Because Definitely did, couldn't have directed it, but almost couldn't have done it because... You can't, you can't find all of that on the day. First of all, at one point, I think I counted, I go on for about 17 pages. <laughs> not, not a monologue. 
people are talking, but yeah. he dominates the, he you does. know, early on, you know yeah. what I'm talking about. He dominates the conversation for about 17 pages straight. And people interject, but he, he's doing all the talking, most of the talking. Do you think it's fair to say that in the first half, I mean, obviously in the, the play's divided, but the movie is, in the first half, he does all the talking. In the second half, he's having to do a little bit more listening. Whether he wants to or not. <laughs> exactly, whether, <laughs> whether he wants to or not. Yes, I would agree. And was it always an obvious thing for you? You've directed uh, before, but was this always going to be your job to direct? Was it something you thought, yes, this is... That's actually is. How, how it started. Scott Rudin asked me to direct it. He sent me the screenplay and asked me to direct and act in it seven years ago, or, or almost eight years ago, seven and a half years ago. And I read it, and I realized I hadn't read the play. So I read the play and said, Troy Max in 53, and I was 55 at the time. I'm like, well, I better hurry up. <laughs> yeah, literally. So then I, and I read the play and said, this is a great play. And I called Scott, and he had produced a lot of plays. He still does. I said, I want to do the play. He said, you want to do the play? I said, yeah. So we, we went about it, and, and Cass Viola, which was smart, and, and everyone else. And we went about the play. It had tremendous success. And, and you know, here we are. And uh, I think I'm right. So August Wilson was quite specific that he wanted a black director. If it was ever gonna, if his screenplay was ever gonna get made, he wanted a black director. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I think you know, as much as it is color, it has to do with culture. There's things I understand about the African American culture that you could never understand, and that's not because I'm black and you're not. It's just things that go on in my mother's house. Mm -hmm. I understand. Things that go on in your mother's house, you understand that I may not. So as like I've said before, you know, Scorsese could have directed Schindler's List and Spielberg could have directed uh, Goodfellas. So is that race or is that culture? I think it's, I think it's culture. Would the, would the story be that different if it was set in 2017? It's written for all time, not just for this time. You know, Death of a Salesman isn't for any particular time. It's for all time. It's, it's set in the 50s. It was first performed in the 80s. We performed in 2010, and now it's a film in 2017. And what is this for a UK audience? What's the significance of Pittsburgh in the 50s? Why did August Wilson pick that? That's a good question. Almost all of the plays take place in Pittsburgh. He grew up there, you know, in in, in the Lower Hill. So I guess he wrote from he wrote about the people he knew and understood. In fact, there was a boxer from Pittsburgh that the character is loosely based on, and but a combination of of, of people, but. Uh, the Hill District of Pittsburgh was definitely a character in the film, in the play and in the film. And, and we ha I had to shoot it there, and I'm glad I did because we met all of these people who, who knew some of the history. But it was just the, the vibe. And of, it, you felt like you were there. It was a real strong community. And like, in fact, the gentleman that lived behind us, Mr. Greenlee, his grandfather— owned the Pittsburgh Crawfords, which were the Negro team that played there. So you had a man like, you had all of this wealth of, of knowledge and history and, 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 and support and goodwill that uh, informs the film. Barry Jenkins is on the show uh, next oh, yeah. week talking about, talking about Moonlight. He has um, uh, eight nominations. Um, you have uh, four nominations. Do you think that, um, particularly after the Oscar So White controversy, that Hollywood is getting his act together, or do you think it's a flash in the pan? What is, what is your assessment? August Wilson wrote a masterpiece. It was a masterpiece in 84. It was a masterpiece in 2010, and it's a masterpiece now. The timing of it, we just we could have come out last year. We, we, we could have not come out this year. But he's won more Tony Awards than almost anyone, so he deserves to be there. And it just so happens to be this year. 
I admire and respect this young man, Barry Jenkins. I looked him up, you know, and he's directed like over 20 short films before he got to make Moonlight. So he kept plugging, kept plugging, kept plugging, kept plugging, and he finally got to tell his story. It just so happens. It just, there's no rhyme or reason to it that both of us came out the same, both films came out sure. the same year. But do, you, but do you think things are changing significantly? I think, that, I think that if it ain't on the page, it ain't on the stage. I think that these are two films that happen to come at the same time and they deserve to be there. I think that next year, if there isn't a film that deserves to be there or performances that deserve to be there, then they shouldn't be there. I think that if there are films that deserve to be there, or if they're film, you know, with African-American stories or performances that deserve to be there, they will be there. I don't think they ought to be there just because someone said Oscar so white. You know, I think that's letting ourselves off the hook. You know, we still have to demand, I still have to demand of myself the best of myself. A writer still has to demand of themselves the best of themselves. Now, whether people accept that or say, hey, you belong, I've been there when I thought I was supposed to win. I've been there when I didn't think I was supposed to win and I won. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, I remember I was up for Malcolm X. Al Pacino was his eighth nomination. I was like, how the heck did... <laughs> yeah. He would have been 0 for 8. How, how did that happen? Yeah. Oscar's not Italian. Or... <laughs> well, uh, all the best for the, uh, uh, for the big show. And uh, Denzel Washington, we appreciate your time with us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Denzel, Denzel Washington. So it's a very you. funny joke. Oscar's not Italian. I don't think <laughs> that was a thing. <laughs> they didn't even have hashtags. Uh, What's well, interesting, listening back to that uh, uh, to that conversation and others which which Denzel did when when he was around is this is his play he is the director he won the Tony for being in the play mm. he knows this script better than anybody um, and yet I think a lot of people will be surprised to hear him say that Troy isn't an angry man because mm -hmm. I think he clearly is yeah. and there's there's a section in there where I where I said to him uh, he's he says he's a truth teller, and I said, "Well, he's also he's a, a liar, and also a liar," and which he disputes. He says he's not, he's not a liar, um, and I didn't want to say. You have to see the film to realize the context in which so much of his life is a lie, sure, and that's why. Sure. And but it was just interesting. Denzel just he said no, he's he's not a liar, and he's not angry. Yeah, but then again, one of the things about uh, taking on a character is that one has. You have to get under that character's skin. You have to feel sympathetic for them. You have to. So, I mean, it may well be that having lived with that character for such a long time, his perspective on it is different to the perspective of a viewer. It's always that thing about whether you trust you trust trust the teller or trust the tale. I think actually, what you have to do is you have to go to it, and uh, you know, and make your own mind up. So, the uh, the most obvious thing to say about fences is that uh, when I when I watched it, and I didn't know the stage play. You'd seen the stage play yeah. with, with Lenny Henry, which and, and I I imagine that it is a really brilliant and really powerful stage play because it is right. a terrific piece of writing. Um, about. 30 seconds into it, I knew that what I was watching was an adaptation of a stage play. And I have to say right off the bat that one of the problems with the film is that it is very stagey. And there is always a question when you adapt a stage play for the screen, whether what you're doing is making a movie or whether what you're doing is making a kind of, you know, a cinematic record of a, of a stage play. And I have to confess that I don't feel that Fences ever overcame the problem of being a stage play moved to the cinema. It, even if you didn't know the play, which I didn't, 
it felt like I was watching something which was a theatrical adaptation. It also made me think, I really want to be watching this in the theatre because when, for example, in that interview, he's talking about there are 17 pages of dialogue with interjections, admittedly, but there is a, there is a lot of it, which is what you felt, what I felt was watching it. I want to be in the theatrical space experiencing this. I want to actually be having that performance delivered to me without the sort of intermediary of cinema because the two mediums are different. They're absolutely different and different things work cinematically than do theatrically. And if you look back to, for example, you know, James Foley has got a film out this week. James Foley famously directed the cinematic adaptation of Glengarry Glen Ross. And I thought that he did a brilliant, a brilliant job with that. And there are certainly times in which we've seen things from different source materials in which what they are is completely cinematic. In the case of Moonlight, which you mentioned, um, which I think instantly is a brilliant film, that has its roots in a sort of experimental theatrical production, but it is absolutely a piece of cinema. First and foremost, it is a piece of cinema. In the case of Fences, it is first and foremost a stage play that has been you know, put onto the screen, and I do think that that's a failing. Now, that said... There are many things about it that are hugely impressive. Firstly, the conviction of the cast, the performances of the cast, are universally, across the board, really, really top-notch. I think that Viola Davis has got a very strong chance of winning, and it would be a deserved win. because she her is, She's fantastic. She is. And what makes her performance so fantastic is that around the central character of Troy, who is so garrulous, so outspoken, so much the master of his own home where he brings back all his resentments about work about his own the things that didn't work out for him in his youth the way in which he tries to impose his dreams on his children all those things mean that he is a very very outspoken character and a lot of what she's doing is a lot more complicated than that i mean when he was talking about there's a moment when you know when she gets the, the big but actually what's brilliant about her performance is the reactions it's the looks it's the glances it's the listening it's the i mean it her performance is really terrific i mean it is and it's often in those quieter moments those moments that are not to do with, you know, the, the sort of theatrical projection that the film really finds its feet. And so I think that what you get is something which is, I mean, it's very, very handsomely made. It's clearly made with, uh, you know, love and integrity and all those things. And the performances are very solid. But they did, you know, it did feel to me like a theatre production on screen, except for those moments when in its quieter moments, when it becomes more cinematic. And it's interesting that the quieter it becomes, the more cinematic it becomes. The louder it becomes, the more theatrical it becomes. And so you end up watching something that feels like it's pulling in two different directions. So as a piece of writing, it's, you know, it, it's great and insightful. As a piece of performance, it's absolutely solidly done with, you know, with a couple of outstanding performances. As a piece of cinema... I think it doesn't overcome the, uh, the the transition from one medium to another. It feels very reverential about the stage play. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, it's a posthumous uh, nomination for the screenplay, and I don't know how much the screenplay was completely completed and how much they may have sort of posthumous, but it does feel like it's a reverential adaptation of something from a different medium that hasn't successfully made the jump to cinema. Well, but you that, heard, heard in the interview that uh, the reverence with which he is held, August Wilson is held in respect by Denzel yeah, Washington. Yeah, you know, well, and, and African-American Shakespeare. And rightly so. So maybe they just thought, I mean, as you just said, you know, maybe we, we can't really mess around too much with his screen. No, no. And, and I mean, I understand that in, entirely. But I think that, that what that does do is it makes the cinematic side of Fences muted. 
it makes it feel like it's kind of having a battle with its format, which is strange and is something that you notice more when the performances are as good as they are, when the writing is as good as it is, when the subject matter is as involving as it is. That last thing about it being cinematic, you do notice the absence because it's a lot of things, but cinematic isn't one of them. Do you generally agree with that? I completely agree with it. Um, well, there's a rare moment of no, no, harmony no. between us. That is not that is not true. You always exaggerate the difference for comic effect, and it's very and it's very effective. I think um, you all the way through. I mean, I, I had seen it as a play, and it, it and it all the time feels like a play. There were there were moments where you could have gone off and made a movie following different aspects of the story, but we don't get that ever. I mean, it's an astonishing performance uh, f- from all the lead characters. Like I said, you know, you, you watch these. So if he gets best actor and she gets best supporting actress... I think, go, she, I think that she will get best supporting actress. In which case you go, absolutely, I completely understand it, but it's nominated as the best film. And I really, I mean, particularly in comparison with Moonlight, which we'll talk about next week, it's which is a proper cinematic experience. I didn't feel as though I was... I didn't think it was Fences was a cinematic experience. Well, also, I mean, La La Land, which I know that there's become the backlash against La La Land is, is huge at the moment. La La Land is whatever else you think it is, is profoundly cinematic. It's a thing that could only exist yes. in the cinema. Jim in London. Uh, before watching the film, I should have been but was not aware that Fences was an adaptation of a play that okay. a number of the actors in the movie had started. Once the film began, it soon became apparent that it was based on a play and there was an element of tug of war in the performance between screen and stage. This is exactly... Uh, that, sorry. And you I, have I, trained I, him well. Can you just say that I, that I have not heard that? Email. No. I've heard that absolutely... How, word how very for strange. word. Word for word. Jim is clearly a disciple. <laughs> No, when, I'm, I'm just agreeing with Jim. You know. When Viola Davis was at the forefront, I was lost in her performance and fully engaged. But yep. at times in the Denzel Washington scenes, I was just lost, particularly so with the monologues, which I suspect will have been given more space in the play. And so their impact will have been more profound. But unfortunately, I became distracted uh, and thought of the speeches more generally until Viola Davis returned to the screen, bringing back hope by giving us humanity in all its humanity. The film has enduring quality. I'm still thinking of the characters, their challenges and actions, and what will have come next for them. They are vivid in my mind because the story is compelling and the cast brought the characters to life. All said, I'm very glad to have had the opportunity to see Fences. Well, it, it, it absolutely is worth going to see. Yeah, it is. And But that, how interesting that that was ex- almost exactly what I said about you know Viola Davis's character being the character that draws you in. Sorry, do you have another one to read out? Nicholas Bensberg, uh, a double bill of Fences and Loving this week. Denzel is immense, hateful, brutal and vulnerable, and although I suspect Denzel might disagree with that, <laughs> and fills every inch of the screen just as his character Troy fills and overpowers every inch of his family's lives. While the tender, intense, loving hides and quietly tells its story from the shadows, not wanting to be noticed, not wanting to make a fuss. On a lighter note, Denzel cannot build a fence and Joel Edgerton cannot lay bricks. <laughs> Just you the... the f- the, the fence is explained uh, in, in, the, in the telling of the story, yes. but it's true, yeah. he doesn't look like a natural fence, fence builder. builder at any stage. No. Uh, we'll do more of this the other side of the news, mail at bbc.co.uk, plus Mark's very fine reviews of these films. Lego Batman, Billy Lynn, Fifty Shades Darker, 20th Century Women, Prevenge, Space Between Us, all this and more. Uh, you can get involved, you can email the show, you can, uh, you can tweet us at Wittertainment and you can text 85058. Six minutes past three. Hello, good afternoon. Welcome to the programme. We're here till four o'clock. Then I'm doing another show for Radio 2 at five o'clock. And then later in the evening on Radio 2, Mark is back. So 
uh, one of the iconic shows of Radio 2. Tell us what you're doing. Friday night is music night. And you actually have to say it like that. So this is a special John Williams uh, concert. Uh, they've done a thing. So it's, you know, it's, it's all these fabulous John Williams theme. There's also a thing on the Radio 2 website where you can you can go on it and you can remix bits of the orchestra. You can zoom in on the, you know, the the, the wow. string section. Yeah, and apparently you can zoom in on me leafing through my script, between, which is sounds like... Well, this is like a virtual reality thing, isn't it? It is. The last... I've seen it. I've seen it. It's really, really impressive. Yeah, it's really bizarre. The last time they, they, they did the thing when, um, the, you know, you it was like you could look round 360 degrees, which was... But this is actually... You can, you can it's hear like different bits of the It's like we're the at the podium with you. That's what it is. Exactly. It's like you're literally there with me. Um, Friday night is music night. Tonight, 8pm on Radio 2, with the remix console available at BBC2, bbc.co.uk slash Radio 2. Now, did I do that naturally? Did I, did I sound like I was reading it out? I think the way you went from ad lib to script was seamless. Quite extraordinary. Thank you. Thanks for bigging that up, Symes. Dom Dove uh, is the name of this correspondent. Hello, series of still images and illusion of movement. LTL. Can I just say, that is a joke that is never going to go away. Do you want to remind us where it came from? Uh, it came from an interview with the makers of... What was it called? Anomalisa. 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 Well, yes. they pick a silly name. And they explained that uh, that nothing in animation was uh, moving. It was just a series of still images creating the illusion of movement. Yeah. And it was really like getting blood <laughs> from a stone. Uh, anyway, Dom says, um, it's my first email in five years. Desperate times calls for desperate measures. I simply cannot remain silent when the code of conduct needs so urgently addressing. I was attending a screening of The Last Temptation of Christ at the incomparable BFI Southbank. Yeah. Mark formerly... This is part of the Scorsese season. Last night, and I came across the most bizarre code violation I've seen to date. Go on. And it wasn't people throwing Bibles at the screen. <laughs> the film was roughly five or ten minutes in. When a late audience member... So these will be cine-literate types, will, will they not? You would think so, if yes. you're at BFI Southbank, formerly NFT. And he made quite a bit of noise scrambling along the row in front of me to his seat. Always very annoying. Always annoying. He sat down and that was that. But an, another five minutes passed, I became increasingly aware of an odd spraying noise. What? Like that. He brought a snake in. I looked towards said late audience member and noticed he'd taken off his glasses, pulled out what looked in the dark to be a full-size bottle of popular window cleaning product. And he was cleaning his glasses. And has proceeded to spray and polish his glasses, constantly holding them up to check the result. This went on for a good 30 seconds, during which the stranger next to him started coughing. I wondered if it was a coincidence, but then the strong soap-scented cloud finally reached my nose... And I knew that it wasn't. Yeah. Which brings me to the code of conduct. I don't wear glasses myself, but I'm aware that both of your bad selves do. Mm-hmm. And there's more of Mark's bad self than ever, of course, although some was removed. Yeah, they're now less of my surgeon. bad self, yeah. So perhaps you can be the judges of whether spectacle spraying is an acceptable pastime mid-film. Answer clearly, no. no. So that's... No, it absolutely isn't. No. You don't need to spray your spectacles. You need to spray your spectacles, do it outside. Because that stuff, you know, even the, the stuff you get to little... I mean, if you're talking about big bottles, but usually you get them in the little blue bottles. And and it is true that they do have a whiff about them, you know, a whiff of detergent about them. And that's absolutely invading the nasal privacy of the people next to you. No, if you're going to spray the glasses, do it outside. If you're going to wipe them, that's perfectly that's fine. Perfectly but don't then fine. hold them up to the light... You know, well, that's not the worst thing, but yeah, yeah, have one of those little wipes. Yeah, one of these things here. They go a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Fluff. You have or one. You, I have one as well. Or use a see? t-shirt. No, don't do that because that scratches the lens. The whole point is you have to have a, an official wipe. 
Yeah, but it, what I mean is if you use your T-shirt, it's not offensive to anybody else. Other than no, OK, glasses. fine, you're only going to scratch your own glasses. Yeah. While we're on the subject, Caroline Thomas, uh, I'm writing to ask if there is a rice cakes clause in the Code of Conduct. Watching T2 the other day with my husband. Hi, Alad. We were subjected to Russell, 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 pause. Russell, 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 pause. Russell and so on throughout mm-hmm. the entire film. It was over the other side of the cinema, not too close, so I was trying to block it from my mind, but it started to seem as though that instead of waiting for the noisiest parts of the film to rustle, rustle, pause, whatever they were rustling, the culprits were actually ramping it up in the quietest parts. Okay. Even in the quietest moments. That's very good, very good. Well done. Very good Superdrunk reference that you just managed to crowbar in there. Like Begbie plagued by thoughts of Renton, I became increasingly wound up, and at the point in the film where Renton gives his 2017 version of the Choose Life speech, I stood up and shouted at the audience, Choose rustling blooming rice cakes all the way through the film. (laughs) Excellent. Actually, I didn't, but I really wanted to. And actually, I didn't know it was rice cakes at that point. Fortunately for all of us, they stopped very shortly after that. It was only later that my husband, hi, Alid, told me that it had been rice cakes. Flipping rice cakes. Mm. I'm changing this as we go through. Yes, I don't I'm, even I'm, know what to make of it, but I imagine you. Begbie would really have lost his uh, temper yes, very at, good. All, at all the rice cakes. Anyway, train spotting was excellent. Yeah, that's but a terrible thing, yeah. Don't rustle. We, we've already yeah, said no, this. Yeah, out. exactly. There's no, there's no excuse for rustling. Yeah, there's very little excuse for rice cakes, incidentally. Well, in general, uh, the thing with the rice cake, at least you can suck it to death, <laughs> can't you? You can put it in and you can just leave it there yeah. and it'll turn your, your mouth into a I know, workshop. I, I know and I'm very on very good terms with many people who are big rice cake fans. What about rusks? A Farley's rusk is great. You can just suck a Farley's rusk. Can you? Other rusks are probably available. Yeah, that's, yeah. Almost disastrous, that link. Anyway, um, think about it. And we move on. So, uh, what else is out? Okay, uh, the the Lego Batman movie. I don't stop giving me that. I'm already look. looking forward to Lego Batman. I've seen what our audience have made of Lego Batman. Now okay. we need to know what you make of Lego well, Batman. The most, I mean, the most remarkable thing about Lego is that Lego became this sort of staple of uh, video games. You know, like a Lego Harry Potter for DS or Lego Star Wars for Wii. All those. So they had made the leap from being the plastic. Are they made in? Is it Norway or are they? They're Scandinavian, aren't they? They'd yeah, made they, the leap from being that into being part of the digital world. Are they Danish? Ago. Danish. I beg your pardon. And uh, so then uh, along comes the Lego movie, which sounds like such a bad idea. You know, you think Lego movie is the worst idea. It really did, didn't it? And then the Lego movie was absolutely wonderful. It was really smart, really funny, really cine literate, had, you know, everything is awesome, which was like a total earworm, which you could never get rid of. And was visually brilliant, you know, used uh, digital animation to somehow bring these building blocks to life in a way which was quite extraordinary. And, you know, was up there with Toy Story 2 in terms of its... You know, it's meta-ness. I, I, I really enjoyed it. So now, from uh, the Lego movie, there's Batman. You remember in uh, the Lego movie, there's Batman. You know, I only work in black or occasionally very dark grey. So uh, Batman now gets his own uh, Lego uh, Batman movie. And uh, uh, Lord Miller, who were the director of the producers... Um, at the beginning, we meet Batman, and he's basically this crime-busting narcissist who's completely in love with himself. Um, you ex- keep expecting him to burst into a chorus of everything is Batman, because he seems to think that everything revolves around him. And when we meet him very, very early on, he's doing what he does best, which is, you know, saving Gotham, saving the world. However, it turns out that he is so insular, so completely self-obsessed, so narcissistic, that what he isn't managing to do is connect with those around him, even his greatest enemies. Here's a clip. I got you. Oh, yeah? Well, there's only one problem. Who's going to defuse the bomb? 
It's gotta be one or the other, Batman. Save the city or catch your greatest enemy. You can't do both. I'm sorry, what did you just say? You can't do both, I said. No, I mean the other thing. Save the city or catch your greatest enemy. You think you're my greatest enemy? Yes, you're obsessed with me. <laughs> no, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. Who else drives you to one-up them the way that I do? Bane. No, he doesn't. Superman. Superman's not a bad guy. Then I'd say that I don't currently have a bad guy. I am fighting a few different people. What? I like to fight around. <laughs> Isn't that line great? I like to fight around. Okay, so that is basically the sort of the tone of the whole film that it's it, for, for a start it's very literate about the other all the other incarnations of batman whether it's the you know the chris nolan batmans or whether it's the the batmans before or whether it's going right back batman, to what surely no you'd be batmans is it batmans isn't that interesting I, I don't think you'd say batman i think if you're talking about the the bat the former batman movies you'd say the batmans and going right back to that weird 60s one which they refer to at one point there's a brilliant but like, he says i'm we're gonna have a punch-up that's so great that the sound effects are going to appear visually on screen anyway so it's very, very i love that tv yeah. series yeah. well yes it, so did i but um but i have to say that the leg the lego batman movie has a fun sense of what it is about that series that was also completely terrible and yet quite funny and so what it does is, on the one hand, it's very cine-literate about the Batman universe in the media, in television, in film. On the other hand, it's unbelievably um, sort of kinetic filmmaking. One of the problems that I had was that the, the screening that I saw it in, it's a very small screening room, and I was very close to the screen, and I wanted to be very far away from the screen because you had that sense all the time that there was so much going on, there was so much stuff happening, that at any point in it, you could freeze frame it and go, oh, I'm missing that gag. I mean, there, there is a gag about uh, Batman's number plate, which I completely missed. I only read about later on, and I know I'm going to go back and watch it. I'm not going to tell you what it is, because, you know, I don't want to spoil the joke. But every single moment of it, you feel there is stuff going on all around the frame that you want to watch and re-watch, because it's only the third or fourth time you're going to get it. As far as the dialogue is concerned, no, well, on it as Batman's Zach Galifianakis uh, as Joker, uh, Michael Cera as uh, Robin, who is you know the person who is adopted, who desperately wants a family. Uh, Barbara Gordon as Ari Dawson, who wants to, Batman to learn to work with other people. And yet, what happens is after his day of crime fighting, Batman secretly goes back goes back to the Batcave, sits on his own, and his little dirty secret is that he watches romantic comedies because it's the one thing that he doesn't have in his life so on the one hand you get all that sort of frenetic visual invention on the other hand you get that thing that every minute there's 30 or 40 cine literate jokes plus you get the stuff that i i imagine i saw it in a screening only with adults but i imagine that there is that there are you know enough jokes in there like him going that will appeal to uh the, the younger viewers i mean i just I really enjoyed it. I don't think it's quite Lego Bat. I don't think it's quite the Lego Movie because I think the Lego Movie had something a little bit more timeless about it. But what I think it is is in terms of it's it's like being sucker punched because the the gag rate is so high. It's like boom, but not sucker punched, rabbit punched. That's what you call it. It's in boom, 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 boom. And after a while, you kind of get just you know just lay off for a little bit because every you know the sight of him at home heating up his lobster thermidor for one in the microwave is funny enough to carry that whole scene through and yet there'll be three or four other gags going on at the same time. I really enjoyed it. I was really worried that I was going to be let down. Um, in the end, as before, the message is that it's, you know, everything is awesome if you're part of a team and, we you know, so we're learning those lessons. But you're doing it in a way which just makes you want... I mean, as I said, if I have a criticism, my criticism is I wanted to reach out and grab the screen and go, just stop! Just stop a minute. Just hold that a minute so I can just 
get all the jokes that are in that frame. Okay, now off you go. But I'm also willing to accept that that may well be a problem of, like when people say to me, you talk too fast, and I go, no, the problem is you listen too slow. It may be that I was watching too slow. Uh, okay, so lots of correspondence about this because, in general, people are loving the, oh, uh, good. Okay, good. this new movie. Uh, this from Phoebe Aslanagic Wakefield. I hope I've got that right, Phoebe. Uh, Mark and Simon went to see Lego Batman movie with my boyfriend on Sunday. What a triumph. How refreshing to see DC gain a much-needed sense of humour and self-awareness, usually the preserve of Marvel, especially after the agonising BVS dodge. The Lego Batman <laughs> movie does, which is, of course, Batman vs Superman, yeah. Dawn of Justice. The Lego Batman movie uh, does to superheroes what the new Deadpool film does. Did, did but better and I liked Deadpool what a pleasure it is to see the character of Batman so satisfyingly and expertly skewered by the perfectly judged satire of this film I love the Christian Bale Batman films I'm pretending poor Mr Affleck lugging that dull script didn't happen and the Lego Batman movie <laughs> I think we're all pretending that is a fine continuation of the character albeit in a very different manner so many great lines which is then repeated which I won't go through because I will deliver them badly thank you Phoebe um, Holly Thompson, theology PhD student in Oxford. Uh, I had a stupid smile plastered over my face from the Deadpool-esque beginning to the fun and ridiculous end, which, given the month I've had, was quite a feat. It's fun, silly, warm and excellently animated. It smashes the six-laugh test through the opening studio credits alone. Will Arnett and Michael Sarah make an excellent team as the megalomaniac Batman and dopey but lovable Robin and the sheer number of Batman jokes spanning from the 60s TV efforts to Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy and BBS Dodge had me and the rest of the audience howling. A big thumbs up from me. Uh, Katie, aged 14, in the student corner. Um, where to start? The Lego Batman movie, while perhaps not being as entertaining as George or Shawshank, completely won over everyone in the cinema, no matter the age. It managed to find that perfect balance between quick-witted adult humour and entertaining the young ones. Yes. Yes, there were not many jokes for the little ones, but me, myself and I found it more than adequate. I think there are more jokes for the young ones than perhaps, you know, we would be... Because, because what I found was... There's all the cine literacy stuff going on and you're probably not seeing the, you know, the whoopee cushion jokes that are happening at the side of the screen. Uh, Gordon Thomas in Long Eaton. What a good film. Everyone in the audience really enjoyed it. The jokes came thick and fast. The script was excellent, far better than it had to be. And it's a great example of multi-layered creativity. It also paid loving homage, homage to... What do we say? Do we do we have discussed this before? Do we say homage? Well, I say homage, I mean, but it's like, it's what's you call it? A, a fromage to his oof. OK. To previous Batman films, one example being when the Joker lists dozens of previous less good <laughs> Batmans. Worth a Google, he says. And it's, it is. The animation also is great. The Lego... The about that thing with the two ships, that didn't work out, did it? <laughs> Lego really looks like Lego. I assume it's digital rather than uh, stop motion, but it looks like the Lego figures have come to life and are walking and moving just the way they would walk and move. The animation of 2014's The Lego Movie was good, but there's a step change improvement uh, on that. Um, Simon, some uh, intensely hilarious laugh-out-loud moments, especially for Batman fans. Robin could have easily been extremely annoying, but wasn't. Where the film was a bit of a letdown for me was probably in the third act, where it gets a bit too sentimental, and whilst not being over-sentimental, didn't keep up with the laugh-out-loud factor. And I don't mind that, that descent into sentimentality, because I think, you know, I think it had earned it. I think it had made it... It had, you know, earned enough laughs to bank a little bit of sentimentality. Andrew Hurd in Northumberland. Lego is from Denmark. The word is formed from the first syllables of the Danish words for play okay, and well. You. So thank Lego you. equals play, play well. well. Tinkety tonk, he says. Thank you. Uh, as indeed do we all. So that's Lego Batman. More correspondence to mayo at bbc.co.uk 322.
Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, which is the uh, new film by uh, Ang Lee. And so the story of uh, Billy Lynn's uh, Long Halftime Walk, which is, let's be honest, which is, you know, based on a novel. Um, so a 19-year-old uh, army specialist uh, is... Uh, has been involved in an act of heroism which is seen uh, by the media and uh, his platoon then uh, come back to uh, America where they are celebrated, where suddenly they find themselves the subject of a possible movie deal, the subject of intense media interest and also the subject of a very strange sort of rock and roll performance in the middle of a, uh, of, a of a football match. This is obviously you know, American culture, this kind of stuff you know, makes uh, a lot more sense. So it is a story on the one hand about the way in which the media takes uh, a real life story and turns it into something which is saleable, turns it into something which is prepackaged. And it has some interesting things to say about the mythologization of uh, warfare, the way in which people create, uh, you, you know, dreams of something which are completely unreal and some ordinary people being trapped in the middle of this mythologization process. What's peculiar about the film, um, which stars Joe Alwyn and Kristen Stewart, who is his, uh, who plays his uh, his sister, is that it's been shot by Ang Lee with this uh, extremely high frame rate. Ang Lee, of course, you know when he did uh, Life of Pi, I think was one of the few people that really did something interesting with the three D format. In the case of this, very very high frame rate, digital two D, ultra clear, ultra clear image. And what Ang Lee has talked about is that this, what this does is it makes the film very real. It makes it feel very, you know, like it's literally happening right there in front of you. You remember seeing The Hobbit, which... Uh, I was going to uh, say, is that the last time we had this kind of... Yeah, but this is clear? a higher, higher frame rate than that. This is, you know, staggeringly high frame rate and staggering uh, digital clarity. I have to say, for me, although I, when you hear Ang Lee talking about why it is that it works, that it makes it immediate, makes it seem like it's actually happening there in front of you, I found completely the opposite. I found it alienating. I found that the process was profoundly uncinematic. That same thing that you had with The Hobbit, which was to do with making everything look a little bit like behind-the-scenes footage, what happens in the case of this is because the the image is so crystal clear, is so has none of that cinematic filtering, it literally look, you know, it looks like a kind of really, really clear high-def monitor, that what it does is it makes the acting seem artificial. It makes the, the drama seem more forced it may it constantly took me out of the story now not everybody may feel the same way about this but i know that i'm not alone in feeling it and believe me i tried i really really tried to think okay this is an interesting use of a format i in the same way trying to do it trying to break down the idea that this is something that is distance this is breaking the fourth wall if you want you know this is brechtian theater actually happening right there in the and yet it isn't because the thing is there is some and it may be that i'm just the wrong generation to appreciate this format but to me what happened was that that clarity that crystal clearness did not make it seem more immediate did not make it seem more like it was really happening it made it everything else about it seemed more artificial, seemed less engaging, despite the fact that the performances were very good performances, suddenly started to look like not very good performances because it looked like rehearsal footage. And it was one of the, the clearest cases I can think of in which somebody thought, this will be an experimental idea, let's see if it works, and the answer is, it doesn't. It's in <coughs> Excuse me, it's interesting that the problem with it is that the visual quality is too good. 
It's not that it's too good; it's that it's too clear. Too, well, and, 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 but, but it sounds like a contradiction. You know, the yeah, problem it, with the movie was be that the picture is too. Clear. No, it's it, yes, but it's a certain type of clarity, it's a certain type of digital clarity, which doesn't actually look like it's happening right there in front of you. What it actually looks like is rehearsal for it's bizarre, and I'm sure there's a very good reason for why this is the case. And as I said, in terms of you know, he's he's attempted to do something profoundly experimental. The experiment does not work, or at least it did not work for me and I am not alone in thinking this. Philip Jones, Batfan. Top three Batman films are now one, The Dark Knight, two, Batman from 1989, (laughs) and three, Lego Batman. Lego Batman movie. Uh, Philip in London on Fences. Don't care if it was a play. Uh, It was brilliant. Powerful, moving characters, astonishing performances, 12 Angry Men, California Suite, the front page, all brilliant movies with one stage-like set. Doesn't Mark see enough rubbish screenplays and implausible characters to be blown away by this film? Uh, well, it it's not cinematic. I'm sorry, but that's that's how I feel about it. I mean, as I said, I think the performances are good. I think the screenplay's good. I just didn't think it was a cinematic experience. Uh, Mayo at bbc.co.uk. A couple of minutes away from the news. What are you going to do? Let's very quickly do uh, Love True, which is a documentary it's about... It's part of the love season on Fireblind. Uh, it is now. It is. Excellent. A uh, documentary directed by Al Maharel, who made uh, Bombay Beach, executive produced by Shia LaBeouf. Three stories. One uh, in Alaska, following a relationship between a young man with uh, very fragile bones and his girlfriend, who has found purpose in life as an exotic dancer. They're very different, and yet they seem to have found something approaching true love. Another focusing on a very musical family in New York, dealing with the breakup of their parents' marriage and also the after effects of an accident. The third of a young man in Hawaii who's found his soul mate and has had a child and yet turns out that actually the relationship that he thought he was having is not the relationship he was actually having. The film mixes uh, documentary with uh, interview footage and uh, dramatisations to create this kind of mosaic of the lives of these people and the way in which their relationships work and the way in which their relationships differ and surprise and, as I said, the the many different faces. It's interesting because obviously this is coming up in the run-up to Valentine's Day. You remember a few years ago, there was that wonderful Kim Longinotto film, Love Is All. Remember that? Which came out just before Valentine's Day and it was a series of uh, scenes and vignettes from movies from a century of cinema showing the way in which love had been portrayed on the cinema screens and what it did was it provided a very interesting kind of counter-programme to the kind of stuff that you usually get around Valentine's Day which is, you know, just sort of rubbishy rom-coms. This, similarly, gives you that kind of alternative counter-programming and it was very interesting to watch. I've got a query for you. Yes. Picking up on the theme that you've just established so well. Yeah, that film's called Love True, incidentally. From Dr P. After nearly two decades of marriage, Valentine's Day comes and goes with a nod and an understanding that one shouldn't go out for dinner or buy chocolates or flowers until it's over. Yes. I was much surprised, therefore, when my other half suggested that, in anticipation of the same, we go out for lunch on Saturday and take in a movie at my favourite cinema, which is the fabulous Glasgow Film Theatre. Yes. Okay. Surprise turned to perturbation. Perturbation. Perturbation, I would think. When it was further suggested that the film we should go and see would be Tony Erdman. Okay. Now, this is probably my fault. For weeks, I've been going on about how good the trailer looks, the rave reviews and the Oscar nomination for Best Foreign Language Film. And you gave it, I think it was your movie of the week. Yeah, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. I would love to see it, but I was planning to go on my own because uh, I'm not sure that my other half would tolerate almost three hours of absurdist German comedy. (laughs) 
absurdist German comedy, yeah. it's no laughing matter. We did. We both took German for a few years just for fun. But I worry that once we've got past the use of the dative case, the past participle of, with haben and sein, and the turbid convolutions of active verb placement, she will be entirely unimpressed. She hated the office to which this film has been compared. Advice, please. Should I take the plunge or suggest an early return home to watch reruns of Columbo? Well, it was in anticipation. OK, I loved Tony Erdman. As you know, there's just been an announcement that it's going to be remade with uh, Jack Nicholson in the English language version. And I can't understand why, because I think that Marina Day has done an absolutely brilliant job with it. Yes, it's nearly three hours long. To me, it didn't feel nearly three hours long. I think that there is definitely a comparison with The Office, with the excruciating power of The Office. But Sandra Huller, I mean, I'd walk over hot coals to see Sandra Huller in anything and this is actually I think her finest performance that said if if, if, I know people who haven't liked it and it has it has they have found it painful I found it painful but also I absolutely loved it and I would happily watch it again Tell me what you're going to do in the next half hour because there's some big business to come. Fifty Shades, 20th Century Women, Prevenge, Space Between Us, all this and more. Very busy between now and four. Your correspondence, please, 850-589-331. TV Movie of the Week. Richard Holiday says, My family were lucky enough to be upgraded to business class on a flight to Toronto in 1990. Ooh. Business class was showing steel magnolias, whereas <laughs> economy was showing Back to the Future 3 pre-release. This was too much for my 11-year-old self, and I've never forgiven steel magnolias since. Phil Donald, Texas Chainsaw, is genuinely creepy. Good job by Toby Hooper. Lavender Hill Mob is a great Ealing comedy. Genevieve and I could never sit through because of the awful soundtrack. Oh, don't be silly. Uh, very good. Amy Jones says, For me, it has to be Super 8, a perfect mix of excitement, nostalgia, heart, and, of course, production values. Spielberg at his best. Can't wait to watch it again. I'll agree with that. Joe Jackson, but not that one. I'm 44, see, and still have not seen the Blues Brothers, so that'll be my choice. Wow. Fiona Winder, it would be normally behind the candelabra, even if it were only 90 minutes of Rob Lowe's stretched face. Yep. But having recently fallen in love with Copenhagen, it's a royal affair again for me. What is our TV movie of the week? A royal affair again for me. Uh, Matt Mickelson and Alicia Vikander. I think we may have chosen this before, but I don't care because it's a film that needs to be seen by, seen by more people. Alicia Vikander is just brilliant in this film she is luminous no but i mean just really really fantastic you know somebody who learned a language to do a role and is one of mass mickelson is fantastic and it's i i loved it and uh, and it was one of those films when i had very low expectations i'd seen the poster i thought it was going to be some kind of film and it wasn't it's wonderful and it is on saturday night into sunday morning uh half past midnight on sunday the 12th that means half past midnight on saturday into sunday morning Thank you very much. They've actually written that out. It actually says half past midnight on on Sunday the 12th of February on BBC Two. And then it says bracket, Saturday night into Sunday morning, Mark. Very, very helpful. Thank you. Well, it wouldn't be Valentine's Day without Five Live Season of Love Mm -hmm. and a little bit of... uh S&M. Fifty Shades Darker. So this is the next in the Fifty Shades uh, movie series. Uh, the plot at the end of the first one was that uh, Anastasia had basically turned her back on uh, Christian Grey. In the new one, he wants her back. Ooh, he wants her back. Ooh, he wants her. Sorry, it's a... What? It was a bananas rev. Anyway, never mind. So he wants her back. Uh, she so doesn't. You broke up from your review to sing a banana rama song. There is never a wrong moment for doing that. Uh, and so he uh, woos and pursues her. He attempts to convince her that he has changed. He's no longer Mr. Hanky Spanky. He will be somebody different if that's what uh, she needs him to be. 
He takes her to a number of uh, lavish ball gowns, including one where there is an auction. She keeps wanting to, to demonstrate her independence. He keeps buying everything she is involved in his clip. Well, let's start the bidding off at $10,000. 10000 Thank you, ma'am. $10,000. I didn't know you had a place in Aspen. I have a lot of places. Boy, we have some ski lovers in the room tonight. Nineteen. Nineteen thousand dollars. Thank you, sir. A week of luxury in America's finest ski resort. Twenty-four thousand dollars. New blood. Twenty-four thousand dollars. I am bid. Do I hear twenty-five thousand? The money was for you. And now it'll go to someone who needs it. Looks as if the young. I don't know whether to worship at your feet or spank you. $24,000 going once. I think I'll going twice. take option two. Sold to the young lady in silver. So not much has changed then? No, well, some things have changed. The first film was directed by uh, Sam Taylor-Johnson and uh, it was evident that what she had tried to do was to... to to, to, to make the best of the source and turn it into something which was cinematic. And it was clearly a very difficult experience. Um, there was uh, famously uh, rewrites done on the original script, uh, the script obviously based on the book by E.L. James, uh, that Patrick Marber did that looked like they were going to really take it in a different direction. Then it turned out that E.L. James didn't want that at all. There was an interview recently in the press in which Marber said very um, generously, well, you know, good for her. She, they're, they're her books. She knows what she wants and this, and she didn't want what I wanted to do so sam taylor johnson now gone now directed by uh, james foley uh, screenplay by nile leonard absolutely to the uh, to the specifications of el james so el james has you know exerted author control and said this is what we're going to do and in getting in james foley there's an interesting thing because you know foley is a safe pair of hands who at one point was a kind of I think, you know, you know, he made that close range. He made After Dark My Sweet, which is a really terrific movie. He also made this thing called Fear, which was almost like a straight-to-video erotic thriller, but with a little bit of, you know, something different. But since then, he has become somebody who is, you know, a safe pop video inflected pair of hands and what's happened with this film is whereas before with the first film you felt that it was pulling in two different directions the the sort of ear scraping dialogue and source material fighting against somebody who I think was trying to make an interesting film not succeeding a whole lot but at least trying to do something interesting with it in the case of this now it has just become much much more ordinary so um what you get is something that is fairly unremarkable i mean certainly in terms of its plot it's much more it's moving into a more standard thriller mode it's setting thriller stuff up for the for the for, for the for the next film which is coming which has also been directed by james foley i think they were shot uh, back to back it's much more of a traditional uh in inverted commas romance with just you know with, with occasional uh, handcuffs and hanky spanky but uh so the thing is it's a really weird experience watching it. I mean, I know that, uh, you know, many people will absolutely hate this film. Many people will, it will watch it like a hen night. And I have to say that I just watched it thinking this is t fantastically ordinary with some very, very bad writing, some v fairly poor performances, although it's probably unfair to blame the actors because the dialogue is so terrible. Directed absolutely with a sort of pop video gloss sheen sensibility, which every moment that anything happens that requires any emotional engagement, there's a pop song that explains it to you, including a moment in which we hear So Lonely, or as I always hear, Sue Lawley, because that was what we all heard at the time. And it's just like, I know he's lonely. You know, I, I have been watching this for the best part of however long it is, and you didn't really need to point that out. Um, 
it feels like there's, you know, Kim Basinger is in it and her presence reminds you that when you look back to what Adrian Lin was doing, for example, with Nine and a Half Weeks, which looked at the time like a terribly tepid, terribly un, you know, uninteresting, unadventurous movie. You see now what that movie was at least trying to do. Famously, in the case of Nine and a Half Weeks, there was a, a you know, the, the, a suicide pack sequence in it, which was then removed from the finished film. And I once interviewed Kim Basinger, who's very, very intelligent, very smart, who said, yeah, you know, there was stuff in it that we had to take out because it just lost the audience. And I'd like at some point for somebody to sit. And actually, I ended up watching this thinking, you know, this is kind of the moment that what you'd like to see is a properly reconstructed version of the film that Adrian Lim was trying to make. Um, I absolutely accept that I'm not the target audience for uh, Fifty Shades Darker. I have very good uh, first-hand accounts from cinema managers who've said, believe me, you know, the audience that's in there for it, they're in there for it, they're, you know, it, it, they, that's what they are going to get what they need from the film. And it, it's a kind of like, you know, like a saucy hen party night out, something like that. One thing I think it does say is that if there is such an appetite for it, one wonders uh, whether what that actually means is that there is an a audience that is very, very poorly underserved because you wonder what it would be like if if the Fifty Shades series was actually good films. In the case of In the case of this, it's not terrible. I mean, people will tell you that it's terrible. It's not terrible. It's just very, very pedestrian, very, very sort of, uh, you know, glossy, soapy, cheesy, terrible dialogue, wooden performances, um, softcore eroticism, the most laughable helicopter crash I've ever seen, uh, and some pop songs explaining the plot to you. So either see that or see Annette Benning and yeah. a whole top cast in 20th century women. I mean, an interesting contrast. An interesting a contrast. A different atmosphere in the screenings, I would imagine. So I love 20th century women. I know you did as well. So uh, writer-director Mike Mills, uh, Annette Benning was on the programme. It was last week, wasn't last it? Last week, yes. So Mike Mills, who had made Beginners before, which had, was a weird story about a man coming to terms with his father's new life after his father finds himself to be a singleton late in life. And, it, you know, it's kind of interesting, quirky, oddball family comedy with a melancholic undertow. This similarly deals with parents and children learning to accept each other. California at the end of the uh, 1970s, uh, you know, the... The politics of that time, which is so different to the politics uh, of this time, are completely. Do, do you think? Do you think they were different? Well, I mean, I know you talked to Annette Benning about it in the in the interview, and she did very specifically say that there was the times when they're watching the television, they're watching politicians on television, politicians having discussions about whether or not materialism may actually not make us all happy. This is Jimmy Carter, of course. yeah, which is the kind of discussion that nobody's going to be having uh, nowadays. So, um, a young man, Jamie, who is an adolescent on the brink of adulthood, surrounded by uh, strong women whose influence is both empowering and also confusing. Annette Benning is his mum, free-spirited, independent, not a million miles away, incidentally, from the character played by Lily Tomlin in Grandma, which I love, which I think was out a year ago. Greta Gerwig as the lodger, who's kind of punky and new wave into photography, becomes a sort of role model. Meanwhile, Elle Fanning is the neighbour who comes into the house in the, through, through his window in the middle of the night to have long, meaningful conversations with him, not realising, apparently, that he is completely besotted with her. He's completely in love with her. And the fact that she's coming to talk to him is just confusing him all the more. Uh, here's a clip uh, with uh, the son and the mother discussing whether wondering about happiness is a good thing. Stop. What? Thinking that you know everything that's going on. No, I don't. I just think that, you know, having your heart broken is a tremendous way to learn about the world. 
Okay. Do you think you're happy? Like, as happy as you thought you'd be when you were my age. Seriously? You don't ask people questions like that. You're my mom. <laughs> Especially your mom. Look, wondering if you're happy, it's a great shortcut to just being depressed. Give me that. Isn't that a great line? That's a good line. Wondering whether you're happy is just a great shortcut to being depressed. Um, we talked about this film uh, a little last week and how much we both liked it. And I think the reasons are, you know, manyfold. On the one hand, it has the kind of naturalistic ensemble performances that you don't often see in cinema because you don't often have casts being allowed to spend the kind of preparation time that they clearly have for this. Annette Bedding was talking in that interview that you did with her about, you know, theatre games, about, you know, pretending to be... Uh, you know, animals or bits of furniture, or whatever, but the kind of the preparation time so that they all felt like they knew their characters inside out. And what you get with this is a world which has texture, which has heft, which has weave, which, as I said before, you felt like the camera could go out of the house and into the street and it wouldn't be a set. It would actually be a film that was, ta- you know, that was taking place in the time period that it's meant to be taking in. It's not plot driven other than to say that it is an, it's a coming of age story about coming of age at any age uh, in your lifetime. When I started watching it, I really didn't know where it was going. I just knew that the cast looked interesting. And I just immediately found myself wanting to spend time in the company of these people. I found their company engaging and I loved the way they talked and the kind of things they talked about. But most importantly, I believed in them as characters and I cared about them as characters. And you know, I've said this before, um, I think it was Roger Ebert, somebody said that, uh, that films are machines for creating empathy. And in the case of 20th century women, that's absolutely what you feel. The other thing is that that 20th century thing is really important. There is a sense that it's a time that has gone and that something has been lost. And again, you addressed this in the interview with Annette Benning. How, how significant is it that it's 20th century women? Funny that this, in, this is in cinemas at the moment with Jackie, which is a film which talks about Camelot, which talks about, you know, there'll never be a Camelot again, which is very much a myth, a constructed myth. And that film is about the construction of the Camelot myth. Well, this, yes, there is a certain degree of, you know, nostalgic roast ending, but it also seems to evoke an age which has been lost. And again, that was kind of dealt with in Grandma, which is a modern day film in which Lily Tomlin was wondering what on earth happened to all the radical progressive thought with which she had grown up. What had happened to the world that we were now where we were? And in the case of this, you feel like you really are back in that period, that period of upheaval, but also that period of growth, that period in which these kind of conversations were possible. I love the characters. I I loved the texture of the film. I really wanted to spend time with these people. I really cared about them. And I would happily sit down and watch the whole thing again now. Uh, uh, which I entirely agree with. Uh, it was It's a beautiful film and warm and witty and funny. And the soundtrack, which you haven't mentioned. Yeah. But, you know, when someone turns up on, on the screen with a Devo T-shirt uh, <laughs> and you're listening to The Clash and talking... And Black heads, Flag and... Or, uh, yeah, yeah. Aidan in Hampstead, Mark and Sam, I've never written into the show before, but felt compelled to when I read a very sniffy review of 20th Century Women by a reviewer who I normally admire. The reviewer described the film as a failed comedy. 
I was astonished to hear the film described in these terms. I saw it this week and thought that it was one of the most delicately drawn historical dramas I had ever seen. It managed to tread the fine line of drawing characters who were clearly the products of their times, punks, hippies and so on, without for a second compromising on their humanity or the authenticity of their experiences. It's so rare to find a period film that includes characters who represent but are not defined by the culture of the era of the era portrayed, thus becoming young ones style caricatures. This film managed to accomplish this, introduced us to characters of such delicacy, warmth, courage and humanity that for me it called to mind the great one, Kurt Vonnegut. I hope and pray yeah. that it gets the critical plaudits that it deserves in other quarters. Uh, Samuel Smith in Canada, my CGB, as you know, cinema going buddy. Buddy. Went to see 20th Century Women on Saturday. Following a failed attempt to see it at an earlier screening, the projectionist had accidentally prepared a showing of gold and the projector could not be reset in time. <laughs> we both loved it. There wasn't an obvious structure to the film. It didn't matter. It was just a joy to spend time with the characters. Ah. Just like say. I felt like I was floating from scene to scene through the movie. Political events, contemporary literature appear throughout, not merely as indicators of when the story happens, but to how the characters are formed by the times they live in. Absolutely. The film serves as a reminder of the impermanence of these and future time periods, a message I found incredibly comforting. 20th century women also passed the six laugh test many times over, uh, often in truly unexpected ways. Tinkety tonk and all that implies Samuel Smith in Canada. Fantastic. So I think in, in, in general people say, you know what, Mark? You're absolutely right. Fantastic. And you know what, Simon? You're, you're absolutely right, too. You're absolutely right, too. You, you're keen and busy. I want to get two more films in before Go we get ahead. to the ending. So, Prevenge, which is the uh, feature directorial debut from Alice Lowe, one of the co-creators and star of Sightseers, uh, uh, the Ben Wheatley film. If you remember, Sightseers was, I think, quite accurately described as nuts in May with uh, axes. It's a caravan, a holiday with murder. In the case of Prevenge, it is a story about a woman who is uh, six, seven months uh, pregnant, who uh, recently bereaved, who at the beginning beginning of the film we see uh, beginning a killing spree and essentially she believes that she is being told by her unborn child to go on a vengeful rampage she feels that her pregnancy is she describes it as less like a pregnancy more like a hostile takeover the film is directed by and starring Alice Lowe who was indeed six or seven months pregnant when she uh, when she made the film she plays uh, Ruth, who is the, uh, the the central character. Prevenge, which is obviously a mixture of the words pregnancy and revenge. I got that. Uh, very good. Okay. And uh, the film treads a very, very uh, interesting line between comedy and horror. I mean, it draws upon both comedy and horror. On the one hand, there are things in it which are clearly, you know, blackly comedic. On the other hand... It refers to uh, horror movies which are very dark. I would think, for example, Andrzej Zawowski's Possession is in there. There are clear links to Rosemary's Baby. Uh, people have drawn links with Alien, which I think is perhaps sort of less on the money. There is a fantastic soundtrack which evokes the uh, synth scores of some of the best uh, Dario Argento work. Uh, the film was made very, very quickly. It was shot in a period of a couple of weeks with a very, very low budget. And essentially... It takes, in the same way that Rosemary's Baby essentially takes real-life paranoias and turns them into a story which has a sort of supernatural underpinning, what this does is it takes feelings of alienation, feelings of separation and estrangement, also, you know, hallucination and paranoia, and turns them into this absolutely jet-black and often very nasty, but also uh, very funny and very strange and very off-kilter, as I said, uh, black comedy. I think that Alice Lowe has done something really quite remarkable with the film. I've seen it twice. The first time I saw it, I thought it was 
there was there's some real sort of you know gross out comedy and the real out, laugh out loud moments. The second time I saw it, I thought it was much more. It had more depth to it, more richness to it. I also thought it was more sad, more poignant. I think it draws together in a very raggedy fashion some very experimental uh, ideas, and uh, it is fiercely uncategorizable. It seems to sort of shape shift with each viewing. I'm sure I'm going to see it again, and I'm sure it will look like a slightly different film next time round. I see it. Uh, it has an almost science fiction look to its uh, street scenes. I mean, it is taking place in realist settings, you know, grotty pubs, slightly seedy streets, uh, anonymous office buildings. And yet it has a kind of strange uh, sort of separation from naturalism. It's not naturalistic at all. And so it is satirical, it is sharp, it is edgy, it is dark. Yes, it is raggedy. Yes, it is imperfect. But somehow those imperfections make it uh, a a more interesting movie. I really liked it and I really, really liked it uh, even more second time round. And hats off to Alice Lowe, who I think has done something remarkable with it. The film is called Prevenge and it is out this week. We have one more. Is that okay? Yes, it's fine. Don't mind me. Space Between Us. I'm just clearing up. Space Between Us, which is the new movie by Peter Chelsom. Um, so the story is, uh, Asa Butterfield is Gardner Elliott, who is the first human born on Mars. The reason that is because his mother didn't know she was pregnant when she embarked on a Mars mission. He has then grown up on Mars secretly because he wasn't meant to be there. And as a result of growing up on Mars, his bones and his heart and his body are not designed to withstand Earth conditions. Okay. So he's on Mars, he's secret, but he can only live on Mars. Due to a uh, connection through uh, social media, he uh, starts to have a long distance, and I mean super long distance relationship uh, with uh, Robinson's Tulsa down on Earth. You know, how are they going to make this work? She's on Earth, he's on Mars, and blah, blah, blah. And if he goes to Earth, where it's possible that their relationship will blossom into something else, he he can't survive, okay? His body can't stand the... Uh, he needs to find someone else to... You know what? Way. It's the fault in our Mars. Hey! Ah, thank you very much. Thank you very much. And that joke is pretty much... <laughs> that is? Yeah, it's just... It's all over the shop. I mean, it, you know, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It's sort of cloyingly... It, it's in, intergalactic cheese of proportions that you can't begin to imagine. And a Gary Oldman doing the Gary Oldman performance that he now does, which literally looks like... I, you know, thank you for the check. How much would you like me to overact in this particular? You know, the one that you did in the Robocop thing. It, none, none of it is credible. None of it is engaging. And at the point that I thought this is the fault in our Mars, I laughed at my own you joke at yourself for about five minutes. But then I stopped, and the film was still going on. Uh, okay, so it's quite an interesting lineup. <laughs> then uh, the movie of the week. You know, in some, there's a, like a choice of three, really. Well, I think you're going to go for 20th Century Women. It's a double header. Oh, go on. 20th Century Women and Prevenge are both my joint movies of the week. There will be a whole lot more on the podcast. It, I mean, it's impossible to think that there actually... It could be any more. could be more of this. Uh, this has been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. Next week, Keanu Reeves is on the show. Kanani Nunu. He's talking John Wick 2, a Chapter 2, to give it its proper title. Did you say Kanani Nunu to him? No, plus the director of Moonlight, Barry Jenkins. Thanks for listening. Drive is next. 
How many times am I going to have to tell you what a great joke it was before you just let it go? No, every day. How pleased are every you day. with yourself? Every day. About that. The fault in our mind. Do you tell your family? Hang on. Yes, I did. Yeah. And did they? what did they say? My son laughed. Right. Okay. And that, believe me, is a remarkable feat. The first time. And then the, the seventh and eighth time? Well, I haven't done it seven and eight. Okay. I just did it the once and I got a laugh and that was it. I, you know, retired. Now, I've got an email from Cardi O'Donnell. Yes. Okay. He says, Cardi O'Donnell from Liverpool via Fleetwood. I was bizarrely named after Cardi Robinson, who played the Fakir in Carry On Up the Khyber. So I think that's a, I think that's a first. I don't think anyone has been named after no. Cardi Robinson. My girlfriend and I recently saw a preview screening of Prevenge, which we now know is your joint movie of, movie of the week. It's followed by a Q&A with writer, director Alice, Alice Lowe. It's a twisted, tense and original revenge thriller with a humour as dark as Werner Herzog's soul. The film is genuinely unsettling as Ruth's pregnant state instinctively makes her a sympathetic character, despite being an unrelenting, cold-blooded murderer. Uh, one particularly gruesome scene will give me nightmares for the rest of my life. I walked away from the cinema entertained and traumatised at the same time. With memorable performances from a great cast, including Tom Davis and Joe Hartley, Prevenge is a fantastic achievement on such a small budget. I'd wholeheartedly recommend Brilliant. to members of the church seeking out screenings of this film and supporting a very unique and distinct filmmaker. Excellent. Um, right. <laughs> right. A couple of things. A couple of things. A couple of things before we're done. Okay. Um, Emma Lees, I would like Emma, to... Re- Emma Lees, I'm going to make you the biggest star the world's ever seen. Yeah. Emily! <laughs> I'm suddenly picturing you wearing silver... With a shaved head. <laughs> no, oh, yes, but, you know... And the this little- is a hot chocolate reference, by the way, for younger listeners. But that, that's a great record, actually. If we, if, it was, if we weren't under the new regime, I'd say we should play that. Yeah, there's a new we, regime whereby we can't, can't play, play music anymore. Yeah. Unless- Are we allowed to... Th- that's not true. We can play 30, 30 seconds, seconds and then we have to jump in and say how miserable we yeah, are. Yeah, but apparently the new ruling that went to the Supreme Court, as far as I understand, yes. is that after we've jumped in, we can't then jump out and let the record carry on. See you in court. See you in court. Said, yes. Exactly. You so-called judge. Anyway, Emily, I've got alternative facts. Emily's the birds are coming back. The birds are They're coming not. Back. That's the fine. Birds. That's fine. That's absolutely fine. He wasn't even listening. He wasn't even listening. There you go. See <laughs> Robin has spoken. It's coming out or it's got oh, bird song on it. It's just, it's like... Oh, is it all coming out? The whole worse. section's coming out. You're making it worse. <sighs> anyway, Emily's says... Emma, Emily's. I would like to report the excellent results uh, achieved by the WRALS, the RALS. This is a entertainment-related anti-lacrimosity solution. Picture the scene, Mark. Will you will you picture this? I will picture the a scene. Day I'm picturing December. it right now. Despite having been up since stupid o'clock, my 10-month baby and I were running late for a hard day at nursery and work. Baby is happily eating a rice cake. See, back to rice cakes. Yeah. I'm running around trying to pack bags and make sure I'm wearing an appropriate combination of clothes. However, the baby then hands the rice cake to the dog. The dog, misunderst- misunderstanding the game, eats the rice cake. <laughs> The baby, betrayed, starts to scream, and somehow the whole incident being my fault, I was unable to cheer her up. However, at that moment, over our other brands available wireless speaker systems, begins Golden Slumbers. The full version. The baby stops crying and then smiles. Then, by the end of the song, is laughing away. A fluke, perhaps? No. This morning, when a nappy change produced baby lacrimosa, Golden Slumbers did the trick again. Thanks, Widdertainment. Not least because it suggests that we can move on from Happy Animal Choir as the staple of our playlist. 
So What's Happy Animal Choir? Well, I think it's uh, it must be a tape, a CD, a download, a stream of what you have to do if you're going to entertain a 10-month-old. OK, I see. While you're desperately trying to get back to normal life. <laughs> um, okay. And Katie Prido uh, wants a word. Oh, yes. Dearest what? chum. Is that, am I being told off? Let's find out. Excuse me? Just a zip. It was just a, like a nervous thing. What? No, it's fine. Well, it, it just it's like a weird thing to do. It sounded like you were sort of telling me to zip it. Oh, okay then. Zip it while zip I read it. this email. www.zipit.com. I should bypass all the obligatory. Is it, have it, has, it, has no child ever done that to you? No. With the you know with the the the, the, the hoodie and it, no. they go, zip, it means be quiet. I wonder why that might be. Because I, probably because I told them the fault in our Mars joke Picked, too many times. Have I mentioned it to you before? Something he's set on Mars. If he comes to Earth, you won't make. Therefore, it's the fault in our Mars. I'm sorry about this, Katie, but I will get there when he's Go finished. On. Something momentous has happened in Katie's life, and you're spoiling it. I'm sorry. Picture the scene. It's two a.m. I'm standing on the misty harbour side in Hong Kong, waiting for the boat that will carry me home to Lama Island, one of the two hundred and sixty-three islands that make up the Hong Kong archipelago. Wow. Are you with us? I am, yes. I'm when impressed. a rowdy rabble turns up at the ferry pier, singing, of all things, that fabulous Newton-John Travolta duet, You're the One That I Want. Cue, I hope, Mark singing, You're the one that I want. Or You're a Wobbly Dog. No, just the ooze is what she was hoping for. Oh, all right. Do it again. Cue, I hope, Mark singing, ooh, ooh, ooh. My knee-jerk reaction was to roll my eyes at my inebriated compatriots. When all at once, during a lull between verses, I heard the unmistakable refrain, tickety-tonk, old fruit, and down, down with, with the, the Nazis. Nazis. I am a fully paid-up subscriber to the iWitter app from which you profit so handsomely, <laughs> and I know that I'm the only person on Lama Island who has identified themselves as a member of the church. I've waited for so long to make contact with a fellow, fellow Wittertainee, and on hearing the good old Queen Mum's refrain, I couldn't help myself. I leapt from my seat and exclaimed, And hello to Jason Isaacs! It turns out that my fellow Wittertainee was a charming man on a visit to Hong Kong. Of course. From he's, deepest, a, he's a Wittertainee. Of course he's a charming man. From deepest, darkest He's Wales. that charming man. He's, I would go out tonight, but he hasn't got stitched to wear. I didn't catch his name, but if you read this out, I'm sure he will recognise himself and feel the warm glow of friendship from one devotee to another, stretching out across the globe via your dulcet tone. His name is Stephen Patrick Bodicey. Thank you for everything. You mean more to me than you can ever know. I'm still hoping that it will all be all right in the end. From Katie Prido, in case you're having trouble wrapping your tongue around that one. Well, we got it right. So there you go. Thanks, Katie. And another tale from around the world. Mike. Yes, we're global. Just checking. Just, um, just rust, rustling some papers. DVD, Make you sound like a newsreader. DVD Not going to work. Don't sound like a newsreader. Sound like you're about to go and do All Request Friday. And now it's DVD of the week. Hugs are free. Hugs at the end. Don't spoil the script. Hugs are free bundles of happiness. Say the trolls from the movie Trolls. They've certainly come a long way from threatening to kill and eat a number of goats who went <laughs> trip trapping over a bridge that they claim to own in Norwegian folklore. <laughs> trolls is just one of the choices for this week's DVD of the week. Others include We Are the Flesh. Don't get those two mixed up for the kitty winkies. However, your choice of DVD, please, and your predictions for marks go like this Christian Closer. We are the flesh would be my choice. 
as it has the same intensity, insanity and amusement value that made the old video nasties so endearing and amusing. Mark being a traditionalist, of course, he will choose absurd. Jennifer Thompson, while Mark will not pick it, Trolls is on order for Thompson Towers and the children, especially child three who's age four, will be watching on hard rotation while we try to explain that True Colours was not made up by Branch and Poppy. It did <laughs> exist before and that is why we know all the words. And not because the CD's been playing since Santa brought it. John Vaughan says, My son loves Trolls. I have to say it made me laugh at points too. Certainly the best from this list. And Ian Galt, possibly Owen Galt, I watched Trolls on the same day I saw Inferno. Trolls was far more memorable, and I can't remember a thing about it. What is our DVD of the week? Camera person. Oh, we haven't got that one on. Here you have, it's on the list. It's nope. on the list. Yeah, I haven't got it. No one has suggested that you're okay. going to pick it. So Camera Person, which is this uh, documentary by uh, Kirsten Johnson, who has shot all these documentaries for Michael Moore and Kirby Dick and Laura Proctress, and it is essentially a sort of scrapbook of uh, images from her documentaries put together to tell a rather different story about the places that she has been and the stories that she has investigated. And I think it's really intriguing. I didn't know what to make of it when I was first watching it. It's something which definitely stands a second viewing. But it's, it's, it's got, a, in the end, an uplifting and positive message, which is that you can find, even in the harshest, darkest stories, something which is a glimmer of hope, um, something which, it, which approaches redemption. It has a strange poetic feel to it. Um, I would compare it perhaps to some of the work of Mark Cousins, and I really liked it. Well, Mark, thank you very much indeed for being our entertaining... You're more than welcome. ...contributor to the show this week. Hey, Mark, you were fab. Hey, Simon, you were fab. We don't need music because you were mu- like music to our ears. You, you had me dancing. I'm in, I'm in the mood for dancing, romancing. I feel like giving it all tonight. Mm. Who did that? That's sounding weird again. The, who? The Nolans. The Nolans, absolutely, yeah. Who am I thinking of? Who was the sort of... the Do-do, do-do, that song. Kelly Marie... Feels like I'm in love. There we go. That's from Disco yeah, Robin, Robin next door. <laughs> Disco, exactly. DJ Robin. It's uh, DJ O'Clock. I, boo, boo, I think boo, boo. Disco Robin should come in in his disco clothes next week so that the we could actually, he could just walk past the webcam and people could go, look, there's Disco Robin. <laughs> disco, Disco <laughs> Robin. <laughs> Rick Dees and his cast of idiots. That's what that was. <laughs> Anyway, well done. Thank you. Goodbye. Yeah, go do the Radio 2 show. Oh, and... Uh, Don't forget, you're on tonight. I'm on, I'm on. Yes, I'm on. That's it, doing my thing. That, there's going to be a lot of birdsong in that, incidentally. Friday night is music <laughs> night. Is that how you're going to do it? I do, I do the whole thing like that, yes. Oi, oi. <laughs> the worst job I ever had. You're in my chair, and I'm supposed to be doing all requests Friday. Why don't you shut it? You. You what? I just can't even, yeah. Anyway, okay, fine. Bye. So, bye. 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 <laughs> Robin, is that all right? Is that a good end? Is that a good end? Fine. Yay, right. Disco Robin. Yeah, disco, disco, disco Robin. Disco, disco.